to memorize text. Like if you want to make a program among yourself for memorizing the text and get together as a group, no issues inshallah, but it's difficult to have a program for memorizing texts for a, such a large number of people. Okay, do we have some questions from the brothers? Ibn Az, the issue of Ibn Zubair is a long one. Um, it's maybe longer than we have time to explain. But effectively, what the companions as a whole saw is that there was a transition from Khilafah into kingship. I.e., it, it went from a stage where there was proper Islamic ruling into a stage of kingship. And that created a lot of... Uh, disagreement and confusion among what, among what should be done. And there's no doubt that Abdullah ibn Zubair was more deserving of ruling than Yazid. There is nobody doubts this at all, that Abdullah ibn Zubair was more deserving of being of rulership than Yazid. And there were a lot of events that had happened, fights that had happened and things that had happened, which caused him to refuse to pledge allegiance to Yazid. He didn't rebel against Yazid in the sense that he didn't, uh, he didn't a, a pledge allegiance and then remove it. He never pledged allegiance to him in the first place. And he never, he never agreed to Yazid in the first place. And again, the, there was a long, a long, long history. I have a video, I have a series of videos on it. But it, it takes a long time to explain. I think I did some on Peace TV and we explained the whole history of what happened from the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib, Uthman ibn Affan, Ali ibn Abi Talib, and then onwards and what happened with Ibn al-Zubair and Ibn al-Ash'ath and onwards. But effectively, what they saw is they saw that there, were a, there was a great deal of munkar. There was a great deal of evil taking place in the way that things were being handled. And so that caused them to, uh, to deal with it in different ways. But the, the scholars and the noble people among the companions were in agreement of not following Ibn al-Zubair in his refusal to pledge allegiance. Okay. Uh, if in any case, some of you just on the exam issue, if some of you do have a, a problem sometimes with Safari, you can try also Chrome and, and uh, Firefox. I have not had a problem with Safari on my iPhone or on my iPad. Both of them worked fine. But some people reported some problems this morning. So if they do have a problem, they can try using either Chrome or Firefox. I will just deal with you. No, we don't. it's not the issue of Husn al-Dhan. Husn al-Dhan is a good point. So the brother said, what about the issue of having Husn al-Dhan of a Muslim, like thinking good of a Muslim? If you're thinking good of a Muslim, you shouldn't think he is a, a fasiq. The argument to that is two. First of all, there is a possibility that he is a fasiq. And as long as there is a possibility, you shouldn't take news from an anonymous person. But the stronger argument is the second one. And the second argument is the argument... Uh, that the harm is present in both. 
the harm is present in the, even if the person is a good person, husnadhan or whatever you have, but still the, the harm is present in both of them. The harm is present in the ignorant person, and the harm is present in, in the anonymous person, and the harm is present in the fasiq. And the harm is harming a people out of ignorance without realizing. And that, that is present in both of them. Uh, and this one, uh, in countries of democracy, uh, people organize rallies to topple due to financial corruptions. Is it allowed? This is not allowed. And then we've established this very clearly. Yani that these issues of rallies and protests and rebellions, none of this is allowed. And none of the scholars of Islam held this to be allowed. Because it doesn't us then bring about any good. It doesn't bring about any good. Uh, financial corruption is a sin. And you can read about financial corruption in the book. Financial corruption is a sin. The Prophet ﷺ said, even if the ruler behaves selfishly towards you. Yani financial corruption. The meaning of selfishly is financial corruption. And financial corruption is not a reason to rebel against somebody in authority. This is, a very, this is an argument I wanted to deal with, but we ran out of time, actually. And it's a good one. Uh, it's, a good, it's a one you should read in the book, which is the issue of when you make interest a law, are you not declaring interest to be halal? Yani meaning that we agree riba is a sin. However, when you legalize riba, are you not making it? to be halal and I would recommend you read it from the book because the, we don't have time to go into it now it would take 20 minutes 30 minutes or whatever but in the book is a very very nice explanation of when do you consider that a person thinks something halal or not and when do you declare when do you consider that it is istihlal we call it in, in, in Arabic istihlal declaring something to be halal and that is that you have to have a clear statement of istihlal Legalizing it does not equate to istihlal. Legalizing something in law could be done out of a desire for the dunya. It could be done out of pressure from foreign influence. It could be done for many reasons. However, the only time you can consider something to be istihlal in Islam is when someone says, I believe that it is halal in Islam. Okay? And even if someone said, I believe it is halal in Islam, even then you would have to ask them, why do you believe it's halal? If they say, because I believe that in our time, the riba is not the same as the riba at the time of the Prophet then in this case, this person has a misconception and that misconception is not considered to be applicable to them. So read the issue of istihlal in the book because it's important. I was going to come to it, but we, we ran out of time. And I have only another five minutes because the masjid are on my case about finishing early. And the Jabariya. Mm. Uh, the Jabariya said that uh, we are like robots and like whatever is happening to us. <coughs> I heard somewhere, you know, what, what I'm confused about. Look, it's the word normal actions which we have the control of. You know, some say that the, there is one color that is not written. It's written when you do something like that. Mm. Okay. So this is regarding a confusion with relation, in relation to Qadr. 
and in relation to our actions. First of all, I would say definitely if you can watch the YouTube video that I have on Qatar, it would be better because I explain it in more detail there. But first of all, the Qadariya and the Jabariya. The Qadariya, they are the people who said there is no Qadr. And everything happens at random. The Jabariya said everything is forced. Now, the problem is that some people in the middle side with one or the other. They're still in the middle, but they side with one or the other. So they say, or oh, the qadr of your actions is not written down until you do them, or the qadr of your intentions are written down when you intend them, or something like that. And this is not true. Every single action that you will do in your life is written in the Lawh al-Mahfuz. It was written 50,000 years before Allah created the heavens and the earth. Everything you do, every word you say, every movement you make, every speech, every sound, every atom that moves, every electron that moves around an atom was written in the Lawh al-Mahfuz. And there's not a single thing missing from that until what will happen on the Day of Judgment, until the Day of Judgment. Every single thing is written in the Lawh al-Mahfuz. However, your actions belong to you. They're not Allah's actions. When I speak, it's not Allah speaking, it's me speaking. However, I am speaking by the permission of Allah Azzawajal and by His will and His decree. So what I say is the will of Allah and the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's my choice, but my choice remains within, the, within what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, allows me to do. And so I make a choice that I'm going to come here today. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows me, permits me, to make that choice and the choice that I made and the decision that I make is written in the Lawh al-Mahfuz before Allah created the heavens and the earth. This is what Ahlul Sunnah said. Now this may still leave some confusion for some people. Uh, first of all, I would say if it does, go back to the lecture uh, and watch the, the full lecture on Qadr in detail because I went into a lot more detail there. And also sometimes Qadr is not an easy issue to understand. If you don't understand it, don't feel scared just to say I believe in what Allah said and I don't understand any further. I believe my actions are my actions. I believe Allah wrote everything before he created the heavens and the earth. And you know, more than that, I cannot understand. There is no harm in you, in you saying that I don't understand more than that. Those of you who do understand more than that, Alhamdulillah. Those of you who don't, it's sufficient for you to say that I believe that everything happens by Allah's knowledge and his writing and his will and his creation. That's sufficient for you to... Uh, for you to say inshallah so those those issues hopefully will be clarified the name the khawarij it was definitely used among the companions but I, can't rem I don't recall a hadith which mentions the name Khawarij. But it mentions the group. The group is mentioned in many, many ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. There are tens of ahadith about them uh, by the Prophet ﷺ. But mentioning them by that name, uh, I don't remember. I know among the Sahaba, yes. And I know also, um, they were also known by other names. They were known by the name Al-Haruriya. This is the name Aisha used for them, Al-Haruriya, because they gathered in a place, uh, a place of that name, Harura. They, in this particular place, Harura, that they, they were known for gathering in that place. So Aisha called them the Haruriya. But they have other names. But I don't remember from the top of my head that the Prophet ﷺ used the word Khawarij 
uh, for them, but I, in, there may be. It doesn't, from the top of my head, I can't remember one. I'm Salam Generally, it's not a good idea to argue with people, um, especially, you know, one of the things I would discourage you from doing is that, you, you know, you attend a lesson for like, for example, half an hour or an hour or two hours, and then, you, you know, you start like sort of like getting too involved in the issue and, and you know, too much starts arguments going back and forward on WhatsApp. You have to understand that what you can learn in two hours is limited also compared to you know, the application of it in the real world. However, it's necessary to challenge haram behavior. So, for example, if you're on a WhatsApp group and somebody says something which is haram and you have the knowledge to be able to respond to that and say, you shouldn't say that, that's not allowed, then you should do that. You should, you should challenge it and you should respond to it. But you shouldn't probably go picking issues with people, especially in the beginning, because one of the things that often happens is I give a class like this one on any topic, like this one, for example, or, and people go and then they start to try to like pick arguments and then they come back and ask me to finish off the argument for them. And they come back and say, oh, I got stuck, you know, he says this, he says that, and now I don't know what to say. And suddenly the basic principle we have is we don't get involved in these debates with people. This is about protecting ourselves and protecting our children from this ideology. So yes, we challenge it. If somebody says, if somebody comes and says that so-and-so is kafir or so, look at these kuffar, what they're doing to, to, the, to the Muslims that they have command over, then we, we challenge this. And we say to them, Ya Akhi, fear Allah Azza wa Jal. This is not permissible for you to say, fear Allah. This is not required. And then give them the book to read or give them some material to read or send them to someone of knowledge. But try not to let this back and forth go. I will give you a dalil. Okay, this is my dalil. Allah Azza wa Jal said. Then he says, okay, Allah Azza wa Jal said. Whoever doesn't rule by what Allah reveals, they are the kuffar. Then this person said, then it comes back and forward and nobody benefits from it. You leave with more doubts and they do not, they do not turn away from their misguidance. But do challenge something, especially from among your kids and your close family members. Because this is what they are getting on YouTube, they are getting on Facebook, on whatever, you know, these social media. They are getting these like statements of takfir. Challenge it. And if you think that you need help to challenge it, come to someone who can help you to challenge it. And you bring to somebody who can respond in a proper, in a better way to what they, you know, to what they, these ideas that these people have. And you ultimately have to judge the severity of the situation. If somebody says to you that, you know, like tomorrow I'm going on a plane to XYZ country, you have to get the authorities involved. You cannot like wait and say, okay, I will have a debate with you. Let's see about this ayah. You, you have no choice but to physically have them stopped for the, self, for the sake of themselves and the sake of the Muslims that they're going to harm. But ultimately, you have to judge. If, a, if your, your kid just started watching some videos on YouTube, like some, you know, like so-called whatever martyrdom, whatever videos on YouTube, then ultimately you don't have to like, you know, ship them to the nearest jail. You know, you can get the issue dealt with slowly and carefully bring them to somebody who can talk to them about it and explain to them because early intervention is important if you get early intervention you can get rid of these issues before they become big but if you let them to get too deep it can be it can be serious
This is interesting, this issue, and it's a, it's a bit of a big issue, actually. Uh, maybe one to respond to later in some detail. But there are three terms you hear used for countries. Darul Islam or Darul Iman. Darul Kufr and Darul Harb. These are three terms that you hear being used. Uh, Darul Islam being a country where the Muslims are in the majority. Or a country where the Muslims are, there is, there is yani it's, the definition is a little bit, a little bit shaky. Yani. But any country which is a, considered to be a Muslim country is from Darul Islam. And it's not the case that they have to implement the Sharia 100% or they have to have, you know, they have to be uh, like implementing all of the rules of Islam or something like that. The fact that they are a country where the Muslims are in, are, are in control any, or are the majority, then this is Darul Islam. As for Darul Kufr, Darul Kufr is a country, the country of the non-Muslims. And sometimes you hear the term Darul Harb, which is a country which is fighting against the Muslims. Yani they're actively fighting against the Muslims. But this is a very, very complicated issue because later on you're going to get into the issue of is there a difference between Darul Kufr and Darul Harb? And if there is, is the fact that some non-Muslim countries are fighting some Muslim countries mean that they are fighting all Muslim countries or not? And these are also issues that you have to deal with and these are more complicated than we have time to deal with today. But generally, Darul Islam is a country where the Muslims are in the majority and, in, in, and it is a Muslim country. And it isn't a case that they have to rule by all of the rulings of Islam to be a Muslim country. I have to finish there because the masjid, strictly we told them, quarter past uh, nine, inshallah. And inshallah, we will, we will talk more on the way out. on to our second subject and it has turned eight o'clock so if anyone hasn't hit submit I need you literally to hit it now yeah anyone who hasn't hit submit like in the next 30 seconds your exam will not be counted so please if you haven't hit submit hit it now 
Okay, this is our new subject, and this is a subject that is extremely, extremely interesting and very, very beloved to me. And I, wallahi, I feel it is one of the forgotten subjects. And I don't mean forgotten that nobody knows it, because alhamdulillah, there are many, many hundreds and thousands of people around the world who know it. But in terms of the general Muslims, it is one of the forgotten subjects. When you hear the general Muslims, you talk to them about Aqeedah, Alhamdulillah, many of them will say, I've been to an Aqeedah lesson, I've sat through an Aqeedah, I've read a book about it. But this is one topic where most people will not have very much information at all. And I would say the majority of people might never have read anything about it at all. What we're going to be talking about relates to the sciences of the Qur'an. And we've titled the subject, An Introduction to the Sciences of the Qur'an. Ulum al-Qur'an. Now, in some ways, what I just said, uh, it will become clear that in some ways, it's not true. Because in some ways, there are parts of Ulum al-Qur'an that all of us know. For example, Tajweed is a part of Ulum al-Qur'an. And so all of you guys know, or most of you guys will have studied Tajweed. But what I'm talking about in terms of Ulum al-Qur'an is the majority of Ulum al-Qur'an, the, the sort of information you would get if you read a book titled Ulum al-Qur'an, the sciences of the Qur'an. So first of all, we need to understand what this subject is. Because like we did in Aqeedah, we have to define what is Ulum al-Qur'an. So Ulum al-Qur'an is made up of two words. As it will not be surprising for you to hear. Ulum and Qur'an. Okay? Ulum is the plural of ilm. Ulum is the plural of ilm. And ilm, it means knowledge. And so the plural is what we probably call sciences or Different branches of knowledge Al-ulum Are sciences Or different branches of knowledge And the Quran We will come to its proper definition later But all of you know generally What the Quran is So ulum al-Quran Are the sciences That relate to The Quran The sciences Or the branches of knowledge that relate to the Qur'an. And generally, we could divide it into many groups. I'm just going to divide it into four for you to begin with, okay? So I'm going to divide Ulum al-Qur'an. Actually, I, I might even divide it into three. Let's, let's divide it into three. Number one, branches of knowledge related to recitation. Branches of knowledge related to recitation number two branches of knowledge related to the history and the recording of the quran and in the history of the quran how was it revealed how was it written how was it recorded how was it preserved <coughs> and thirdly branches of knowledge that relate to understanding and implementing the Qur'an. So the first branch of knowledge 
those things that relate to recitation. So what is included in those things that relate to recitation? Tajweed is included. Tajweed being the science of pronunciation, how to pronounce the Qur'an properly, how to recite the Qur'an properly. Included in recitation is the science of the qira'at, the different ways of reciting the Qur'an. Now many of you might have heard the different qira'at without even realizing it. Have you ever heard anyone recite Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin? Some of you will have said, yes, I've heard someone recite like this. So this is a qira'ah. It's a way of reciting the Qur'an. And I love this science. This is one of my favorite sciences to study, the qira'at. But so many people these days, it's almost absent. Maybe in the whole of Dubai, there is only one or two masajid that you can go to where the imam reads in a different qira'ah than hafs, which we are all, hafs and asim, which we are all accustomed to. Okay, many of you have heard the Imam recite Maliki Yawmiddin. How many of you have heard him recite Zirata Ladina and Amta Alayhum? And not so many, less. Yani. Zirat with a cross between a sad and a zai. Not a za like this and not a sad, but a zirat, like halfway between a sad and a zai. And then Alayhum instead of Alayhim. This is also a qira'ah of the Qur'an. So this is something that you guys, inshallah, will hopefully understand and take to learning. And I've said before that I genuinely believe that we should be teaching our children the qira'at of the Qur'an. Firstly, the qira'at give you, it's like learning the Qur'an ten times over. More than ten times, but at least ten times over. And you have... It's like learning the Qur'an ten times. You have lots more information in there. You have a different aspect on the ayat, a slightly different meaning, a slightly different emphasis. And it's a miracle of the Qur'an that you can fit all of those into a single book. No other book can be read in over ten, and ten is not the limit, over ten different ways and still be the same book and still make perfect sense and still have no contradictions and yet give you different meanings to the meanings that it gave you before. This is a miracle of the Qur'an. So if any of you, your children or yourself, are hafad of the Qur'an, your hafid of the Qur'an, I strongly recommend that you do not stop at hif of one way of reciting the Qur'an, but you begin again with another hif. And you do hif again. If you've done hafs and asim, which most of us know, the, sta the normal way that people recite the Qur'an in the masajid, then I recommend that you do Warsh and Nafi'. And I recommend that you do it, I recommend that you do it like you did Hafs. And you don't sit with a book of what's the difference between Warsh and Hafs, and this one is different here. And you just learn the Quran again. You memorize the whole Quran again, but in the Qira'ah or the Riwayah of Warsh and Nafi'. And my teacher also recommended to me you do this three times. He said, I recommend you memorize the Qur'an three times. Once in the recitation that is common in your country, for us it is Hafs. Then again, in the next most common recitation, which is common in the world, which if you've done Hafs is Warsh, and if you've done Warsh is Hafs. And then one more. He said, if you do this, you will have covered all of the different 
rules and regulations and procedures of recitation. In other words, if you gather, for example, Hafs and Warsh and Qalun, then you have gathered every different kind of recitation in one place, even though the others will not be different from one of those three, for example, generally. So if you can learn the Qur'an twice or three times, then you can take a book of rules, like Ash-Shatibiyyah, and you can just learn the rules. You can just learn what is the difference between this one and this one and this one and this one without learning the Qur'an, without memorizing the Qur'an ten times over. But at least you need to memorize the Qur'an twice or three times over and then start learning the rules. This is easier for the recitation. People who learn the rules in the beginning, they struggle. It's like, for example, if I gave you a book of Tajweed. What would happen if I gave you guys a book of Tajweed and said, no, no practice. Read these rules. Mima sakina, nuna sakina, what do you do with this? What do you do with ra? Ahkam ra? You know, ahkam noon, ahkam tanween. And you start doing all of these rules, and then I just give you the Quran and say, read. You will struggle to be able to read the Quran properly. So, what do we start our kids with? We don't start them with ahkam and mima sakina and so on. We start them with reciting Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen till they develop some skill, then we teach them the rules. The qira'at are no different. It's better that you learn another qira'ah like you learned your first one. Just memorizing the Qur'an, one page, another, another, another. And then you start learning the rules. This way it will be, it will be easier for you. So this is a type of the branch of, of, uh, of issues regarding uh, recitation. Included in the, in the branches of recitation are the, the rewards of reciting the Qur'an. The rewards of reciting the Qur'an, this is also included. And the etiquette of reciting and memorizing. So there are etiquettes for the one who has memorized the Qur'an, what we call adab hamalat al-Qur'an. The etiquettes of the one who has memorized the Qur'an. Is it befitting for someone to memorize the Qur'an and then to be lazy with his salah? Is it befitting for someone to say, I'm hafid of the Qur'an and then he swears and curses and cusses you know, like a person who is, you know, like a street seller, like a, you know, a street vendor on the side of the road. There are rules and there are regulations and etiquettes of the person who memorizes the Qur'an. How should they behave? What kind of personality should they have? What kind of behavior should they display? And as we've said before, one of the major differences between the early generations and our generation when it comes to the Qur'an is that the early generation took memorizing the Qur'an to be very, very serious. You could be appointed to the judiciary if you memorized two surahs from the Qur'an, Al-Baqarah and Ali Imran. And you would be appointed to the judiciary and you become a judge. You become somebody of extreme knowledge in the sight of the people. Now, you know, every 10-year-old child has memorized 10 juz, 12 juz, 15 juz. But you don't see those, the effect of that recitation upon them. So they still you know, treat the, the things the same way, they still speak the same way, they still behave the same way. So part of the area of recitation is about the etiquettes of reciting the Qur'an. How should the memorizer of the Qur'an behave? What should their personality and character be? What kind of knowledge should they have and display? So that's a part of recitation. The next one that we said is the history of the Qur'an. The history of the Qur'an. So this includes 
the stages of revelation. Because the Quran was not revealed in one stage to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa It was sent down in one stage. Because Allah Azza wa Jal said, Inna anzalnahu fi laylatil qadr. We sent it, i.e. the whole of the Quran, down on the night of the decree or the night of power, Laylatul Qadr. However, it was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ over a period of 23 years approximately. In little pieces, piece by piece, ayah by ayah. And there's a lot to understand about that. Was it revealed in order? We're going to learn that it wasn't revealed in order. It wasn't revealed in... Alif, Lam, Mim, Thalika, Al-Kitabu, La, Raiba, Fi, Hudan, Al-Muttaqeen. Parts were revealed in order. Parts were revealed one ayah and then another ayah from another surah. And then another ayah from another surah. So, how did the Qur'an come to be ordered in the way that it is? How was the Qur'an revealed in stages? What are the different stages of, re- of revelation of the Qur'an? How was the Qur'an compiled into a single book? Because we know that the entire Qur'an was recited to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, or the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam recited it to his companions. And Jibreel recited it, and he recited it to Jibreel, and it was recited to the companions. How did that recitation end up in a mushaf, in a single copy of the Qur'an? And just for terminology, we're going to use this word a lot. The copy of the Qur'an, the one you have here, we don't say the masjid has hundreds of Qur'ans. This is not the right terminology. We say in this masjid there are hundreds of Qur'ans. No, we use the word mushaf. Mushaf, and mim, and sad, and ha, and fa. This, is, this means a copy of the Qur'an. There is only one Qur'an. There are not millions of Qur'ans in the world. There is only one Qur'an. But there are millions of masahif, of copies of the, the mushaf. So how did it end up in a mushaf? What about the history of writing the Qur'an? How was the Qur'an written down? Sort of, what about the... You know that the Qur'an is not written the same way as ordinary. Arabic is written. There are some differences. Why are those differences there? Why do you get a little alif sitting in the top of the word? Why is it that some words are not written the same way that they are written in ordinary Arabic spelling? Why is it that in ordinary Arabic we write uh, a kasra underneath a shedda? And we write the shedda sign and then we write the kasra sign. And in the Quran, the kasra is written under the letter. The way, the way that the hamza is written, why is it written with a little sad? sign on the top this is part of how the Quran is written and the skill and the style of writing the Quran and likewise how was the Quran preserved how was the Quran preserved because the Quran is preserved it's preserved for us as it was revealed letter by letter and word by word to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, it's been preserved. But how did that take place? Was it by writing it down? Was it by oral transmission? How was it passed from teacher to student? How many teachers did they used to be? How many students? How many of the Sahaba taught the Quran? How many of them learned the Quran? And how many of them became 
major figures in the teaching of the Quran and what were the differences in the things that they taught. This is all a part of Ulum al Quran. With regard to understanding and implementation, the most obvious example of this is a tafsir. Now, here we have to be a little bit careful. We have to be a little bit careful. What is the link between Ulum al Quran and between tafsir? Because almost all of you will be aware of tafsir, the interpretation or the explanation of the Quran. When you read tafsir, for example, Ibn Kathir, tafsir is a sub-science of ulum al-Qur'an in a technical sense. And in a technical sense, it falls under ulum al-Qur'an. However, practically, practically, it's generally considered to be its own subject because of the large volume of content. So when you get a book which with the title of the book is ulum al-Qur'an, don't expect to see a lot of tafsir in that book. Even though tafsir is a sub-science of ulum al-Qur'an. What you might find in that book is what we call usul al-tafsir. Usul al-tafsir. I.e. the principles upon which we make tafsir of the Qur'an. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُ الزَّكَةَ Perform the prayer and give the zakah. What is the meaning of, how do we understand this meaning? What is the meaning of salah? Salah in Arabic is dua. Does this mean we have to make dua any five times a day? Allahumma ghfirli. Yeah, I prayed. How do we understand the tafsir of the ayah? The way that we understand tafsir and the way that we make tafsir. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَالسَّمَاءِ tariq. How do we understand what is the meaning of At-Tariq? Because Allah told us, وَمَا أَدَرَاكَ مَا الثَّاقِبِ The bright shining star. So this science of how do we make tafsir of the Qur'an? Because you can't make tafsir based on your desires. I think the verse means this, you think it means this. How do we approach tafsir? This you will find in a book of Ulum al-Qur'an and you will find in a separate science which we're going to cover called Usul tafsir So the answer to this, just to recap, is tafsir and usul al-tafsir are branches of ulum al-Quran. However, because of the large amount of content in them, they are often separated into separate books. They are often separated and divided into separate books. Likewise, tajweed will be separated into a separate book. Why? Not because of its size, because Tajweed is not very big, but because of the need of people to learn it and they're relatively being more important than the other areas of Ulum al-Qur'an. So that's why Tajweed you'll often find in a separate book because we want to teach it to our children. We don't want to give them, you know, eight volumes of Imam al-Suyuti's famous book on Ulum uh, al-Qur'an, Al-Itqan. When we want to teach our children Tajweed, do we give them eight volumes of Al-Itqan fi Ulum Al-Quran and say, there you go, learn how to pronounce Surah Al-Fatiha. No, instead of that, we have taken those elements of Ulum Al-Quran and brought it into a separate small book that they can learn, which will teach them Tajweed. 
So you will find areas of Ulum al-Qur'an. Ulum al-Qur'an is the big umbrella that covers everything. And you'll find areas which are separate in other books. Okay, we talked about tafsir. Okay. Likewise, within understanding of the Qur'an is the topic of asbab and nuzul. The reason why or the causes of revelation. Why were certain ayat revealed? What was the cause behind the revelation? Was it because of an event that happened with one of the Sahaba and then the ayah was revealed? Were there multiple causes or just a single cause? Does every ayah have one cause? Or could an ayah be revealed more than once about two different things in two separate times? This is the kind of thing that we deal with in Ulum al-Qur'an. Likewise, Asbab al-Nuzul often has separate books. What will, what will you find in a book of Ulum al-Qur'an with regard to Asbab al-Nuzul, the causes of revelation? You'll often find a discussion, a general discussion about them. Like, can you have more than one cause for an ayah? Can you have more than one ayah for a cause? Uh, are all of the causes of, uh, of revelation known or are they not known? And so on. You will actually get books on Asbab al-Nuzul which talk about every individual ayah and why it was revealed. Because that's obviously a big topic, so you wouldn't find it in the, in the book of Ulum al-Quran. Likewise, you find the Makki and the Madani verses. Which of the verses were revealed in Makkah and which of them were revealed in Medina? Likewise, you find An-Nasikh Wal-Mansukh. Those things which abrogate and those things which are abrogated. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may give a ruling in the Qur'an and that ruling later on is removed by another ruling. And another ruling comes along and removes that first ruling. So what we're going to learn about is, is it the case that the sunnah abrogates the Qur'an or does the Qur'an only abrogate itself? If the Qur'an abrogates an ayah, do we still recite it or is the ayah removed from the mushaf? Are there ayat in the mushaf which have been abrogated? And are there ayat which have been taken out of the mushaf which the ruling is still valid? And so this is the topic we'll talk about in the topic of An-Nasikh wal-Mansukh, abrogation. And Allah Azza wa Jal told us about this in the Qur'an. مَا نَنْسَخْ مِنْ آيَةٍ أَوْ نُنْسِيهَا نَأْتِ بِقَيْرٍ مِنْهَا أَوْ مِثْلِهَا أَلَمْ تَعْلَمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ Whatever we abrogate from an ayah or cause it to be forgotten, we bring better than it or equal to it. Do you not know that Allah is able to do all things? This is another point. Al-Nasikh wal-Mansukh. Also, some of the overlap with Usul al-Fiqh. Like uh, Al-Nasikh wal-Mansukh is an overlap with Usul al-Fiqh. It's also a part of Usul al-Fiqh. But in Ulum al-Quran, we deal with a different aspect. So in Usul al-Fiqh, which we're going to come to, I think, in the next module. I can't remember exactly, but I think it's in module two. How we extract rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah. The emphasis is how to extract the rulings. Here, the emphasis is about the Qur'an. Where is, what is an example of abrogation in the Qur'an? 
is the Quran abrogated by the Quran or only by the Sunnah or is the Sunnah abrogated by the Quran and reverse it? And these are all issues. But in Ulum al-Quran, we're dealing specifically with issues that relate to the Quran. Whereas the Sul al-Fiqh is more general, looking at abrogation from the point of view of how does it affect our rulings? How does it affect the halal and the haram? Here, we're not going to look how it affects the halal and the haram. We're more interested in where is it in the Quran and what are the examples of it and uh, are verses removed from the mushaf and if so, by who? Who removes them? Or who includes them? And so on. Uh, some other things that relate to usul al-fiqh, al-muhkam wal-mutashabih wal-am wal-khas wal-mutlaq wal-muqayyid. So the different classifications of the ayat into, for example, uh, am and khas, general and specific, um, mutlaq and muqayyid, unrestricted and restricted. And we'll talk about what those mean later on. But just so you know, there are, the ayat are classified into different types and the classification, we study it in Ulum al-Quran. Likewise, the miraculous nature of the Quran. Al-I'jaz. The miraculous nature of the Quran. Why is the Quran miraculous? What is miraculous about the Quran? Are the meanings miraculous or the language is miraculous or both? And why? So we study the miraculous nature of the Quran. Likewise, the grammar of the Qur'an and the uncommon words of the Qur'an. The grammar of the Qur'an, again, you're probably going to find this in separate books, but you might find just a brief discussion of it in a book of Ulum al-Qur'an. You find separate books, I'rab al-Qur'an, the grammar of the Qur'an. Because the grammar of the Qur'an, as our Arabic has become weaker, and anyone who is a native Arabic speaker will know that our Arabic has become very weak in comparison to the Arabic that was spoken by the companions and the fusaha, yani the, the, the eloquent speakers among the Arabs. And our Arabic has become very, very weak. And so many times we might struggle to understand the grammar of the Qur'an. And so there are books which explain the grammar of the Qur'an. They explain, for example, where is the subject, where is the predicate, where is the adjective, where is, and so on. And there are also books that cover what we call Gharib al-Qur'an, uncommon words. Uh, generally, the Qur'an does not have many uncommon words because the Qur'an was revealed in a clear, beautiful Arabic language. But there are words that have become uncommon. Like they were, they were known to the companions, but in, in the development of Arabic, as Arabic has progressed throughout, the t throughout time, they've become rare, rare words. Or rare usage. The word is known, but the usage of the word in the context of the Quran is, is maybe not known. A simple example, someone might say, it's not, not, a, not really gharib, but just to give you an example of what I mean that you can identify with, we could say, wal asr. Al asr, meaning time, the passage of time, is something that is not maybe as common in usage now. We might use the word as zaman or as zaman, maybe more than we would use the word al-asr. But we still say asr, yani asr and Nabi sallallahu the time of the Prophet But these are examples, and you can get much more complicated words, but I wanted to give you one that just you can understand how the usage might have changed. And I once remember seeing a, um, or hearing of a, uh, a brother who was translating for a sheikh 
in the masjid and the brother had a PhD in Arabic. So his Arabic was very good. He was a native speaker, he had a PhD. And he mistranslated the surah wal-asr. Not because he didn't understand Arabic, but because the usage has somewhat changed. And so sometimes there is a need to clarify the meaning of words in the Quran. And what is this word that maybe we're not so familiar with as we used to be in the early days of classical Arabic. So this is a little bit about ulum al-Quran. What is ulum al-Quran? Uh, in terms of what its definition is. When you understand what ulum al-Quran contains, then you understand how important it is. And you understand that for us to be able to properly implement the Quran, and let's be, you know, let's be absolutely clear about this. The reason the Qur'an was revealed is to implement it. Not to memorize it. Memorizing is a secondary benefit which leads to the primary benefit of implementing it better. Is that understood by everyone inshallah? Like I don't want, sometimes people think the Qur'an was revealed to, I need to recite it. Or the Qur'an was revealed to, the Qur'an was revealed for example to memorize it. That's not the case. The Qur'an was revealed to implement it. Reciting it is a means to achieve that aim. And it's a, it's a beneficial act of worship which brings you near to Allah because when you recite it, you increase your iman and you become near to Allah and nearer to being able to implement the rulings of the Qur'an. As for a person who recites it and doesn't implement anything, then this is like the munafiqeen who recite the Qur'an but they don't implement anything from the Qur'an at all. So it doesn't benefit them their recitation. The primary benefit, there are many secondary benefits, but the primary benefit behind the, or the primary wisdom behind the revelation of the Qur'an is for you to implement it in your life, for you to act upon it. And to act upon it in its most full or in its fullest capacity to be able to do that, you need to be able to understand about this Qur'an. And ulum al-Qur'an gathers many, many sciences that are essential for understanding the Qur'an. Of course, among the most important of them is a tafsir The tafsir of the Qur'an is among the most important uh, sort of categories of understanding the Qur'an and implementing it. But in general, all of the parts of the ulum al-Qur'an are important. The different ways of recitation, the proper way of pronouncing, the history of the Qur'an, what is abrogated, what isn't. I mean, all of these are important parts of implementing the Qur'an. And so somebody who has a, a knowledge of ulum al-Qur'an comes under the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The best of you are those who learn the Qur'an and teach it. The best of you are those who learn the Qur'an and teach it. And to learn the Qur'an properly, you need at least a part of ulum al-Qur'an. 
And to teach the Qur'an properly, you need a part of ulum al-Qur'an. And to interpret the Qur'an properly, you need a part of ulum al-Qur'an. So it's important. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, كِتَابٌ أَنزَلْنَاهُ إِلَيْكَ مُبَارَكٌ لِيَدَّبَّرُوا آيَاتِهِ وَلِيَتَذَكَّرَ أُولُو الْأَلْبَابِ This is a book which we sent down to you and the ayah is I'll bring you for the reference inshallah don't have the reference Okay uh, 38.29 That's the reference 38 Ayah number, Surah number 38 Ayah number 29 A book which we sent down to you Full of blessings Mubarak This book, this Quran is Mubarak ayati, That they may ponder And reflect Over the signs Found within it that they may ponder and reflect over the signs found within it. So no doubt the Qur'an with regard to, as we said, with regard to the Muslim, it's about implementing and acting upon it. And also with regard to the non-Muslim, the Qur'an has a purpose. To establish the proof of Allah Azza wa Jal upon His creation so that nobody can say after that, we were... We were unaware of what Allah had revealed to us. So the Qur'an was sent down. One of the other primary purposes of the Qur'an, especially in terms of the non-Muslims, to establish the proof of Allah Azza wa Jal over His servants. That nobody can say we were not given any instruction. Or we, we did not know that we had to follow the messengers. And the Qur'an was sent down to reflect upon and ponder upon its ayat. To think about what Allah Azza wa Jal is saying to you and to implement those things in your life, and that people of understanding may remember. And the people of understanding will remember. So this is enough of a benefit for the you know the the uh, study of Ulum Al Quran. A little bit about the history. A little bit about the history. And I just want to talk about this also a little bit more um, generically, if I might. A lot of people ask about this issue. That the books we have today, I go to the library and I see a book on Aqidah and a book on usul al-fiqh, and a book on tafsir, and a book on ulum al-Qur'an, and a book on seerah, and a book on history of the Khulafa al-Rashidin, and so on and so on. And a person might say, how did these end up like this? How did we end up with these separate sciences? When we don't find these separate sciences from the Prophet ﷺ. First of all, we say the origin of all of these sciences is the Prophet ﷺ. And if you look through Sahih al-Bukhari, for example, and Sahih Muslim, these are jawami'ad, they are books that are comprehensive. You find tafsir, 
and you find principles of the Sharia, and you find rulings of hadith, principles of hadith, and you find, you know, uh, tafsir of the Quran, and you find the interpretation of dreams, and you find the halal and the haram, you find many, many things, but it's not filtered into a single science. So in the beginning, it began with the Prophet So for example, we find in the ayah in Surah Al-An'am, ayah number 82. الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِظُلْمُ أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمُ الْأَمْنُ وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ those who believe and do not mix their faith with dhulm. I'll come to dhulm in a minute. It is they that have safety and it is they that will be guided. The companions came to the Messenger of Allah because the word dhulm has lots of meanings. The word dhulm, it means oppression, i.e. self-oppression. And it means oppressing other people. And it means oppression with regard to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it has lots of meanings. So the companions became confused. They said, O Messenger of Allah, which of us do not do injustice? Meaning all of us do sins. All of us sin. Does that mean that if we sin, we will not be safe, nor will we be guided? And everybody who sins is condemned to Jahannam. Or have we misunderstood the ayah? The Prophet ﷺ told them that the ayah, it's not as you have understood it. It is as Luqman said to his son, Ya Bunayya la tushrik billah inna shirka la dhulmun azim. Oh my son, do not make a partner with Allah. Making partner with Allah, making a partner with Allah is the greatest oppression. Is the greatest oppression. So the ayah in Surah Al-An'am, the explanation of dhulm is not sin, nor is it being nasty to your friend or, you know, not speaking to your neighbor. That is not the meaning of dhulm in the ayah of Surah Al-An'am. The meaning of dhulm is ashirk billahi subhanahu wa ta'ala, making a partner and associating others with Allah Azza wa Jal. So the companions became confused. They came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam explained to them the parts of the Quran that they didn't understand and showed them how to, how to implement it. So among the companions, this is the next generation, of course, first of all, you have the Prophet ﷺ. Then at the next level among the companions, you have many of the companions who were known for their expertise in the Quran. Particularly Abu Bakr, and Umar and Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum. And sometimes we forget this. You know, if you sometimes say, who is the most knowledgeable in, in fiqh among the companions? And somebody, you know, gives the name of, uh, you know, one of the companions. And you say, who is the most knowledgeable in tafsir? And they give, you know, the name of Ibn Abbas. And they ask, who is the most knowledgeable in recitation? And so on and so forth. But in reality, they forget that the most knowledgeable in fiqh and hadith and recitation of the Qur'an with the Khulafa al-Rashidun. Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali. But because they later on came to take over the ruling of the Muslims, there's no doubt that they became busy with the general affairs of the Muslims as opposed to 
you know, for example, concentrating on one particular science. So maybe, for example, Ubay ibn Ka'b and Zayd ibn Thabit may be more famous in terms of what we know of knowledge of the Qur'an, but there is no doubt that the knowledge of Abu Bakr of the Qur'an eclipses the knowledge of Ubay and the knowledge of, of Zayd radiallahu anhumah. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. So sometimes we forget this. Like sometimes when you say, who is the most knowledgeable in fiqh among the companions? And somebody says, okay, then they give the name of one of the companions. They say Ibn Mas'ud, <coughs> for example. The most knowledgeable in fiqh of the companions is Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu However, in terms of becoming famous for fiqh as opposed to general, then there's no doubt that the likes of uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, for example, uh, and Abdullah ibn Umar and Um Salama and Aisha and so on and so forth became more famous in hadith. People say Abu Huraira. Because there's no doubt that Abu Huraira gives special attention to hadith. But in terms of generally, the Khulafa al Rashidun are among, among the four or at the forefront of all of the sciences of Islam. But those who became famous for their knowledge of the Quran include, apart from those, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, uh, Ibn Abbas, Ubay ibn Ka'b, Zayd ibn Thabit, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, Abdullah ibn Zubair, and Aisha, radiallahu uh, anhum. And we continue to emphasize, and especially when you hear that, you hear Aisha on that list, there isn't a science of Islam that you would mention except that Aisha would be listed in the top five of, or the top ten of the, the companions who studied that science. In hadith, she is the fourth most frequent narrator from the Prophet ﷺ. In fatawa, in fiqh, in judgments, in giving out the halal and the haram, she gave out, she is the fourth most of the companions in giving out judgments. In the Qur'an, she is famous for her knowledge of the ways of recitation of the Qur'an and the preservation of the knowledge and the tafsir of the Qur'an. And in every sub-science, Aisha radiallahu anha has precedence among it. And that shows us the importance of educating our women, our wives and our daughters, and not leaving them to be, you know, that like we should have men who are qurra, and we should have men who are fuqaha, from the fuqaha, yani, we should have men who are muhaddithun. And we should also have among them the female companions. There were among them those who excelled in the recitation of the Quran. And you will hear the role that Hafsa radiallahu anha pray, uh, played in the preservation of the Mus'haf, uh, that she was the one entrusted with the keeping of the Mus'haf. And just while I'm on the topic, this is a very strong refutation of those people who claim that Islam reduces the status of a woman or doesn't trust her because the, because the testimony of two women is equal to that of one man. And they say that this is saying, you know, you are just putting the women as being ignorant and you are lowering them down and you are just saying that, you know, they are just, they are no good for anything. The Mus'haf was left with Hafsa, radiallahu anha. And the entire entrusting of the Qur'an was left to a woman. We take ahad narrations from Aisha radiallahu anha regarding the most serious issues of our religion that we don't take from, and we haven't took from thousands of men. And we take from Aisha in terms of rulings and hadith what we don't take from 
100,000 men after her. So it's not possible after you see the role that these female companions played that someone can say that Islam reduces the, reduces the, the position of a woman because the testimony of two women is equal to that of one man. This is testimony in a certain situation for a wisdom that Allah Azza wa Jal knows, a weakness within the character of a woman or an a tendency to be, for, for example, pressured uh, in court or to protect her or to stop her from forgetting whatever Allah Azza wa Jal who created male and female knows best about. And for the reason that Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. But it's not true to say that Islam did not value the intellect and the position and the knowledge of women in Islam. Rather, when you read sciences like Ulum al-Quran and like uh, Mustalah al-Hadith uh, and like, you know, science of Hadith and Tafsir, you will see within those sciences that the role the female companions played was a major role that we are dependent upon them in. And there are thousands of ahadith that we only took from women. And they have nobody else in the chain. And nobody else that it came to us from a woman. For example, Aisha or Um Salama or Hafsa radiallahu anhun. And likewise, the preservation of the Quran and the, the sciences of the Quran. So this is an important point to note because this is a big shubha in these days. And people come and say, you know, you relegate the woman to a second class citizen. And you say, how is your, what is your evidence for this? And he says, well, the testimony of two women is equal to that of one man. And the inheritance, the, the male gets twice that of the female. They don't tell, but the female doesn't have to spend that money upon anybody. It's hers. The man has to spend that money upon his wife. So it makes sense to give the man more than to give the woman because the man is obliged to spend upon that money, from that money on his wife and his daughter and so on. Whereas the woman, whatever money she gets, it is hers. Nobody can take it from her, not even a single dinar or a single dirham. Every single penny of it, every single dirham of it belongs to her. As for the man, the money has to spend. So just be aware that this, any, these words are said and be aware that within these sciences you can find a very good way of replying to those words. So if the testimony of a woman was not of any value, then why do we take the testimony of Hafsa with regard to the Mus'haf? Why do we take the testimony of Aisha with regard to the major issues of our religion? It's clear that this is specific to a particular circumstance, which is a testimony the woman gives in a court or in a similar situation, and that there is a wisdom for that in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so we've talked about the companions. Among the next generation from the tabi'un, that is the generation after the companions. Who do we have? We have the likes of Sa'id ibn Jubair and Mujahid. And Mujahid ibn Jabr and Ikrima and Tawus and Ata. All of them were famous as being from the students of Ibn Abbas. And one of them gathered how much of knowledge? And subhanAllah. And if you were to gather the tafsir of Mujahid alone, it would suffice you for the tafsir of the Qur'an. And yet he was just one student from the students of Ibn Abbas. So there were those students. Likewise, uh, the students of Ubay ibn Ka'b, Zayd ibn Aslam, Abu Aliya, Muhammad ibn Ka'b. And likewise, the teachers of Ibn Mas'ud, uh, the students of Ibn Mas'ud, 
like Alqama and Masruq and Al Hassan Al Basri and Qatada. So you have huge numbers of the Tabi'un that were famous. Now, what do you see? The numbers of the Tabi'un that were famous for specifically for tafsir of the Quran or Ulum al Quran were more than that number that we recited from among the companions. That's because each companion had, of those companions, had many, many, many students. So Aisha, she had students. And Ibn Mas'ud had students. And Ibn Abbas had students. And Ubay ibn Ka'ab had students. And then they became extremely famous for that particular science of the Quran. And then as time went on, it became the norm to separate the Islamic sciences. The Prophet ﷺ did not separate. He did not come and say, O Muslims, I'm going to teach you something from Ulum al-Quran today. Today our lesson is tafsir. The Prophet ﷺ taught tafsir and fiqh and, and principles and all together in one go. And that was the right thing for that time. And then as time went on, the books were solidified into separating that knowledge into separate fields in order to make it easy for the student who came later on. Because there's no doubt the times changed, situations changed. Those books do not have things in them that are invented, yani in general, yani at least if they're from reliable authors. They do not, you know, they, it wasn't that the author just invented things. They took it from the Prophet ﷺ, but they differed in the way that they compiled it. So instead of having it spread across many, many years of ahadith and, you know, and different ayat, instead they kind of filtered it and said, right, I'm going to write a book just about ulum al-Qur'an. I'm going to write a book just about tafsir. I'm going to write a book just about hadith. And that's another important point when people say to you, all of the sciences of Islam were written down 200 years after the hijrah. They want to make the Islam like the Bible. And they want to make the sciences of Islam like the Bible. And it has no history to it. It was just invented 200 years after. That's not the case. They were taught by the Prophet ﷺ and by his companions and by the group that came after them. But they were formally written into separate subjects. 100 years, 150 years, 200 years, depending on the subject uh, and depending on the author. Probably the first science of the Qur'an to be written down was tafsir. From among those who wrote early books of tafsir include Imam Sufyan Thawri, Ibn Uyayna, Waqi' Shu'bah, and these are among the companions who, or among the scholars who wrote books of tafsir, and from the later generations. The earliest among them that we know of is probably Sufyan al-Thawri, who died 161 years after the hijrah. And as you know, as we've said before, writing was not common among the companions. Writing became common around about 
Somewhere, you know, between 100 and 200 years after the Hijrah, writing became the norm. Before that, oral tradition was the norm. And it's not fair to judge the Muslims based on this. It's not fair for a person to say, how can you say this when? You know, like, they, for example, they will, they will take away or detract from Islam based on the fact that um, it was orally transmitted in the beginning. But what we have to understand is that oral transmission was the best way for those people. And written transmission was the best way for the later people, the latter people who came along. The early people, they, they couldn't write. So if you're going to tell them to write down a book of tafsir, how do you expect them to write down a book of tafsir when, they, when many of them could not write? That's unfair to request them to write down a book of tafsir. Because they couldn't write, and like you see with someone, for example, who is blind, if you ever see a person who is blind or, or, or has extremely limited vision, their hearing is very good. And their sense of touch and smell is far better than a normal, for example, sighted person's sense of touch and smell. So likewise, those people who couldn't write, their memory was far, far greater than our memory. Why? Because every time we forget something, we just write it down. When you can't write something down, you naturally develop a very, very strong memory. So the best way of them preserving this knowledge was by, by memory. And later on, when people started to write, and of course there were companions who wrote, but they were very limited in number. When later on people started to write very frequently, and everyone learned to write, people's memory became worse. Because now you rely upon writing and you're not used to using that part of your brain so what Allah takes from one he gives to the other and so it's not anything surprising that books started being written 150 140 years after the hijrah because that was the age when people started to be able to write like commonly like everybody could write or most people could write by 300 years after the hijrah almost nobody was memorizing in the way of the older, the early generations. And people would check their memorization against writing. So it's, no, it's not surprising to see. Uh, probably the very most famous book of tafsir to be written, and the earliest one that we have easy access to, is the tafsir of Ibn Jarir al-Tabari. Tafsir al-Tabari. And Ibn Jarir died in 310 years after the Hijrah. And in my mind, this remains the best book of tafsir that has ever been written. Certainly the, in terms of comprehensively. I mean, maybe the tafsir of the individuals before him was better in terms of narrations. But in terms of a comprehensive book of tafsir, your first place to look at tafsir should be tafsir al-Tabari. Especially because the aqidah of al-Imam al-Tabari was the aqidah of Ahl sunnah as opposed to those who came after him from many of the scholars of tafsir who fell into ilmul kalam, rhetoric and philosophy and many of them that fell into changing you know, words and meanings regarding the names and attributes of Allah At-Tabari represents a tafsir which is according to the, to, the, to the beliefs of the early generations and he's not the only one of course but definitely one thing my teacher, one of my teachers, uh, Sheikh Ali Tawajiri, used to always tell us, 
And I remember he used to give everybody a hard time about this. Try not to rely upon the later generations of tafsir when you can take tafsir from the early generations. So for example, someone might quote Al-Jalalain. And that's fine when you're beginning. But you know Jalalain has aqidah issues in it. This book, uh, Tafsir Al-Jalalain, it has issues in it with regard to belief, with regard to the names and attributes of Allah and so on. So why quote from something like Al-Jalalain when you can quote from Al-Tabari? And Al-Tabari lived 300 or died 310 years after the Hijrah. And you get much closer to the understanding of the early generations. Now there's nothing wrong with these books like Al-Jalalain. We still benefit from Tafsir Al-Jalalain today. But you have to understand the weaknesses that exist in the books of the later generations. Even Ibn Kathir, Rahimahullah, despite having the correct aqidah and being upon the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah, even Ibn Kathir fell into errors in this regard in his tafsir, where he quoted from the people of rhetoric or the people of kalam, or where he, uh, for example, quoted from the, you know, excessively from the Jews and the Christians. And that's not blameworthy because that's what he, he gathered together the tafsir from. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to understand that the more you can go back to the early generations and take their tafsir, the closer you will be to the understanding of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. So Tafsir al-Tabari is a major resource. The problem with Tafsir al-Tabari is two things. Number one, to the best of my knowledge, it only exists in Arabic, and it's absolutely huge. And the second one is that it's quite complex to use. So definitely using Ibn Kathir is an excellent alternative. Using Tafsir Al-Imam Al-Sa'di, for example, one of the, the summarized tafsirs, excellent. Even Al-Jalalain, very good, and for the most part, as long as you avoid the names and attributes. It's very, very good to use this tafsir. Very simple and easy to understand. But as you develop your knowledge in tafsir, we want you guys to be going back to the original sources. And one of the best books to gather the original sources of tafsir is the tafsir of Al-Imam. Al-Tabari Rahimahullah Ta'ala And there are many others yani, that, uh, Some of which we have available And some of which we don't have available uh, After tafsir um, People like for example uh, Ali ibn al-Madini uh, Ali ibn al-Madini Who died in 234 After the hijrah he uh, wrote a book on Asbab al-Nuzul. So this is probably the first person or among the first people to write a book on the other sciences of the Qur'an apart from tafsir. And so in the beginning we have the likes of Sufyan al-Thawri who died 161 after the Hijrah. About, what are we talking about, 70 years roughly later we start to see books on Ulum al-Qur'an, what we would term Ulum al-Qur'an today, things like Asbab al-Nuzul, things like, uh, you know, Qira'at and things like that. Um, Al-Nasikh wal-Mansukh was also written around about 270 after the Hijrah, um, and so on. And there's no doubt that the books of Hadith are full of Ulum al-Qur'an, any Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim and so on and so forth. 
later on people came probably around about 300 years after the Hijrah around about the time of Imam al-Tabari people came and started to kind of distill all of this separate knowledge into very distinct books on ulum al-Quran and, and uh, gathering them together giving them names for example uh, one of the first ones that we have As an example, we have Al-Burhan fi Ulum Al-Qur'an, um, which is uh, around about three, just around about the early 330, something like that after the Hijrah. So we have, you know, books that were written at that time, and then later on, very famous books that became, you know, probably the most famous of the later books on Ulum Al-Qur'an is the book of As-Suyuti, Al-Itqan fi Ulum Al-Qur'an, and this is an excellent, excellent uh, uh, book of which we'll be quoting from uh, extensively. In English, and I'm going to finish off now because it's about time for us to stop and just take questions. In English, there are, there, there are not that many books on Ulum al-Quran. Uh, however, there is one particular book that stands out um, as being very, very, very beneficial. But... I will give you a warning about it. And that is that the author of that book, later on, after having written the book, went into a lot of deviancy. And he became extremely far away from the Sunnah. So I do not recommend the author in any way. However, the book itself, to the best of my knowledge, is an amazing, amazing book, which really there isn't anything else available. If there was something else, I would recommend it to you. And this is the book which is uh, called, and I will find the name for you. Let's see if I can find the name. It is called An Introduction to the Sciences of the Quran. By Yasir Qadi. And those of you who know Yasir Qadi know what happened to him after that but the book that he has written is free of any of his later yani deviancy that he came with later on and really there isn't another book in the english language that i know of that gathers all of the sciences of the quran in the way that he gathered them in this book and generally with regard to his work i have no problem with using his early work in the work that he wrote in the time when he was in medina before he left medina and went to, to the u.s and started what he started and allah but I recommend yani, the, the books that were written during his time in Medina. They are exceptionally good. Yani, so I don't have a problem with this book. But be sensible. Yani, I'm telling this to you with, as an amana. Do not go and then start watching his YouTube videos and then start following his Twitter feed and all the rest. Because wallahi, it will not benefit you anything in the sight of Allah. Take this book like sometimes we have to touch upon the books of the Mubtadi'ah, yani the books of the innovators and the books of the people who deviated from Islam. Sometimes we have to benefit from their books for a limited use only. So I thought for a long time about whether I should recommend this book to you. Half of me was saying let's not recommend it because it will cause yani, a problem among the brothers. But the reality is that there isn't another book which gathers together the sciences of the Quran in the way that this book does. And I haven't seen any deviancy in it. Yani, I haven't seen in this book any of the deviancy that came later on. So my advice to you is to, to benefit from the book in a limited way. If you have Arabic, 
then don't touch it. You don't need to go near it. Because if you have Arabic, there are plenty of books in Ulum al-Quran in Arabic that you have no need of this book, inshallah. But for those of you who only know English, then I recommend that you get a copy of this book, an introduction to the sciences of the Quran, because it does cover a huge amount of beneficial uh, work, and mostly it quotes from those early books. And Allah knows best. So that being said, uh, inshallah, we will take about 10 minutes only of questions. I will take from the sisters usually first. I'm not getting any questions from, through from the sister's side. Uh, so maybe they will come in a minute. We will just ask you guys. Naam. With regard to the, um, the summary of the three fundamental principles, I would like you to summarize it from the audio that I sent. Now that doesn't mean you can't add things from other books. You can add things from other books as well. Uh, but I would like you to at least focus upon the audio inshallah. So we can make it even. Otherwise somebody knows Arabic and they have access to beautiful explanations and it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't make it fair. You can add things from other books but try to focus based upon the explanations. don't know. This one I don't know. I will have a look at it inshallah. I will have a look at it inshallah. I'll make a note here one second. Tafsir. The best practices? Okay, yes. That is one of them, yes. I think that it's very important with regard to the Qur'an that we take the sanctity of the Qur'an seriously. That means that when we recite the Qur'an, we should not recite something in our salah that we know that we make many mistakes in. There is no harm if you make a mistake, but reciting something you know that you don't know, you haven't memorized it properly, I would not recommend this because this is not befitting towards the sanctity of the Qur'an. Like our teachers, I remember our Shaykh Salih Sindi. Rahimullah Ta'ala, he used to, Hafidhullah Ta'ala, he used to say the Shaykh, Hafidhullah, uh, used to say to us that don't write an ayah in your exam unless you know the ayah. Because if you write the ayah and you are deliberately guessing it and writing it wrong, this is a kind of inventing a lie against Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So he used to say to us, if you have an ayah, and he used to give marks if a student would write, I don't, I haven't memorized the ayah, but it contains the word such and such. He would give you the mark for it. Because he said it's very serious for you to write an ayah of the Quran and then just to like, you know you don't know it and you're just making it up. So likewise in your salat, you can write, recite something that you might have one or two errors in um, or you might forget and then remind yourself. But you shouldn't recite something that you know that you're going to make many, many mistakes in because it's not befitting towards the sanctity of the Quran. Okay, I have this question. Let me do this one first. Okay, what does Islam say regarding on regarding uh, living on other planets? 
That's an interesting question. Um, there are two parts of that question. One question is, does life exist outside of Earth? And the best answer I can give to this is that Allah Azza wa Jal has not told us of any life which exists outside of Earth. Yani to the best of my knowledge, there is no ayah, nor is there a hadith of any life existing outside of Earth except for the life of the heavens, meaning the angels and the jinn that go between the Earth and the earth and the heavens. There is another issue here. What is meant by the heaven? And the strongest opinion to my knowledge is that the lowest heaven, as-sama'u-dunya, is the universe as we know it. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that he has decorated, وَلَقَدْ زَيَّنَّ السَّمَاءَ الدُّنْيَا بِمَصَابِيحِ We have decorated or beautified the lowest heaven with stars. Where are the stars? The stars are in the universe. And Allah told us that the stars have decorated the lowest heaven. So Allah knows best, but to the best of our knowledge, the entire universe that we know, all of it is as-sama'u-dunya, the lowest heaven. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best about that. Is it possible then for human beings to live outside of earth, i.e. for you know to colonize another planet or to live there? There are, this issue comes back to the ayah in Surah Al-Rahman regarding crossing the barrier of the heavens. And many of the scholars understood this ayah to mean that you cannot leave the atmosphere of earth. And they understood this ayah to mean this. Um, you know this regarding Aqtar, As-Samawati Wal-Ard. Yani the, the limits of the heavens and the earth. However, other people understood it to mean the limits of the, the universe that we can see. And Allah Azza wa knows best. That is the best we can say. As for beyond that, we cannot say. However, we can say that Islam has a ruling for every circumstance. And if Muslims are in space, they have a way to pray. They have a means of praying and a time to pray and a direction to pray, just like if they are on the earth. And Allah Azza wa knows best about anything beyond that. But many of the scholars say that human beings will not be able to colonize another planet because of the ayah in Surah Al-Rahman. And Allah Azza wa knows best if this is the correct tafsir of the ayah or not. But at the end of the day, any what matters to us is what the Quran says and what the Prophet said. And then whatever happens beyond that, Islam has its scholars that will make its rulings at the time when it is needed, inshallah. We still don't have anything from the sisters. Assalamu alaikum. The time between the Adhan and the Qadha when Dua is accepted, do you have to be in the vicinity of the masjid or can you, if you hear the Adhan at home, um, you can still take advice with that? And also, what if you don't hear the Adhan at all but you just know it's between that time? Mm. Wallahi, the wording of the hadith regarding the, the Dua being accepted between the Adhan and the Iqama would suggest that it's that time that it's accepted. And that if it is the Adhan time where you are, even if you don't hear the Adhan, then your dua will be accepted at this time. This is what the, the wording of the hadith suggests. But there's no doubt that the one who goes to the masjid is more, even more likely for their dua to be accepted at that time because they are gathering between a blessed time and a blessed place. And so there's no doubt that the person who goes to the masjid is, is more, is closer to, to having their dua accepted at that time. But the hadith, the wording of the hadith is general. It seems to indicate that the, that the time between the adhan and the iqama is a time when your dua is accepted uh, regardless of whether you hear the adhan or not as long as you know that the adhan has 
has gone. Does Ulum al-Qur'an cover sciences related to understanding the Qur'an? Uh, yes, we mentioned this. Uh, the question I think is, is Arabic included in Ulum al-Qur'an? Arabic as a language is not included in Ulum al-Qur'an because Arabic is considered to be something that you have before um, or it comes before Ulum al-Qur'an. However, what is included from Arabic is the Arabic that people would not understand or the Arabic that relates to tafsir of the Qur'an. For example, uh, you could say the Arabic that uh, relates to words people don't understand. So if someone said, I'm doing a Quranic Arabic course, like I'm doing Arabic to understand the Quran, then this may well come under Ulum al-Quran because it's a kind of explaining the words people don't understand in the Quran. But generally learning the Arabic language doesn't come under Ulum al-Quran, but there is an overlap. So it's quarter past now and we have to finish. We told the Imam that we'll strictly finish at quarter past, but we'll catch you on the way out. One thing I will say to everyone is that if you do still want to do the exam, the exam is still open for anyone who didn't sit it, but we won't take marks. We won't give you, we'll give you like your marks back, but we won't count it officially. But inshallah, if, if anyone at home wants to do it or practice it again, there's no, no issue with that inshallah. But do like indicate that to us, yeah, so we can, yeah, something like that. Inshallah. Did it work though, in the end? Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Was Salatu Was Salam, Ala Abdillahi Wa Rasulihi Nabina Muhammadu Ala Alihi Wa Sahbihi Ajma'in, Amma Ba'd. So inshaAllah Ta'ala, we're going to continue with our study of Ulum Al-Qur'an. And today, inshaAllah, will be the last day that we cover Ulum Al-Qur'an from a general perspective. Uh, from next week, inshaAllah, we're going to cover Usul Al-Tafsir. And we're going to go into a specific kind of Ulum Al-Qur'an and study it from a, a detailed book in of itself which is the topic of usul at-tafsir in other words what are the principles and the rules and the framework by which we make tafsir of the quran and then obviously finally in our final subject we will actually study the tafsir of the quran and because we have three subjects in this module the first one was Aqidah and Principles of Learning. This one is Ulum al-Qur'an and Usul al-Tafsir. And then finally, there will be a module on the Tafsir of the Qur'an, implementing what we have learned in this, in this subject and, and applying it to the next one, inshallah. So today will be the last day that we study Ulum al-Qur'an in a general sense. And you guys can see that we're not going to cover, for example, a 400-page book in two weeks. And we're going to select elements. However, I'm very careful, best as I can be, that I won't do a text like this unless I believe that you guys are capable of reading the text by yourself without any major issues. 
So for example, I wouldn't just take a very difficult text which had extremely complicated uh, elements to it and then say to you, we're just going to take one page from the beginning and one page from the middle and one page from the end and you can read the rest. However, this is a subject that is not very difficult to read and we've given you some material to read online. You can download it and read it uh, via the links that get sent out to you every week. So I think it's very possible for us in class just to highlight some of the most important parts of the science and to let you read the rest for now. So we come on to the definition of the Qur'an. The linguistic meaning of the Qur'an. Now, there are lots of opinions about this, but I'm just going to really, I'm really going to try to focus and highlight some of the most important ones and just move on. So linguistically, some, there are three important opinions regarding the Qur'an. One is that the word Qur'an comes from qara'a, to read or to recite. And we know the very first word that was revealed from the Qur'an was Iqara bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq Khalaq al-insana min alaq Iqara wa rabbuka al-akram So Iqara was the first word to be recited, to be read, to be revealed from the Qur'an. So some of the scholars said the Qur'an, it comes from Qara'a and this is the most famous opinion, this is the most popular opinion. The second opinion that is somewhat important is that the Qur'an has no derived root. And it comes from, it is a, a proper noun like Torah and Injil. And it is a word like, a name like the Torah and the Injil. It doesn't have a... Uh, it, it doesn't have a direct association or a direct meaning. It is a proper noun that is just given to the book, like the Torah and the, and the Injil. The third opinion, which is worth noting, is that the word Qur'an comes from Qarana and not Qara'a with a Hamza, but Qarana with a Noon. Not Qara'a with a Hamza, but Qarana with a Noon, which means to join or to bring together. And in this case, 
it would mean that which is compiled together in a single mushaf any that which is brought together in a single a single mushaf and there are other opinions that you can read about Now we know that the Qur'an has many names and from the names of the Qur'an is Al-Kitab and the Qur'an is known as the book ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ لَا رَيْبَ What is the difference or what is the why is the Qur'an referred to as Kitab? Again, there are two well-known opinions, and I'm not sure if these are in the text that you have, so I'm just giving you these from, from myself. Perhaps you'll find them in the text as well. The first is obviously that the word kitab comes from kataba. And that the meaning of kataba is to write. So the famous opinion is that it's called the Qur'an because it is read and it's called Al-Kitab because it is written down in the Masahif. But there is another opinion about the word Kitab and that is that if we return to the origin of the word Kitab, it doesn't mean to write. It means to gather together. And the word Kitab originally comes from al-jam'a gathering something together so when you gather something together in one place many types of knowledge are gathered together in one place you call it kitab and this is the reason why in for example sahih al-bukhari and sahih muslim you have for example in sahih muslim kitab al-iman al-imam al-bukhari didn't give a, any a detailed tabweeb in his sahih but uh, for example in imam muslim sahih you have kitab al-iman why do they call it kitab al-iman because it gathers together not because it's written down because it gathers together all of the topics of iman in one place so it's also possible that the word Kitab refers to al-jam'a, gathering everything together in one place. And in reality, all of these things are true. Whether the origin or what the origin is, is uh, there may only be one true answer regarding that, but in terms of the... Uh, the understanding of what the Qur'an is, the Qur'an is something recited and the Qur'an is something written down in the Mus'haf and the Qur'an is something which gathers together all of the important parts of knowledge of our religion in one place. On that topic, it is important to note that the Qur'an is, if you like, a summary of the religion of Islam. It's not correct to say, or it is correct in one way and it's incorrect in another way, to say that the Quran gathers all 
of Islam. From the point of view of generalization, the Quran gathers everything in Islam. It did not leave anything from Islam except that it is found in the Quran in a general sense. But in a specific sense, the Quran does not gather everything related to Islam. And this is the problem because if you say such a statement without qualifying it, you say the Quran doesn't gather everything needed in Islam. Then this is contradictory to what the Quran says about itself. However, if you say that there is no need for anything after the Quran, then this contradicts the Quran also, which commands us to take from the Sunnah. And it also is obvious in the sense that the Quran does not list many of the most important things about Islam. Just to give you a simple example, the percentage of zakat. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Quran. The percentage of zakat, for example. How many raka'at or how many raka'at you pray for dhuhr and asr and maghrib. So how do we join between these two? We say in a general sense, the Quran gathers the whole of Islam. In a specific sense, in terms of the detail, then the Quran alludes to it and tells you where to find it, but it may not give you the detail of every single act of worship that is needed by a Muslim. However, it gives you where to find that detail. وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوا وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُوا Whatever the messenger gives you, take it. And whatever he forbids you from, abstain from it. There are many, many different, different definitions after that of what the Qur'an is. And alhamdulillah, this is not one of the most important things because all of us know what the Qur'an is. However, what is important when we define the Qur'an and what did we say about a definition? It should be jami'un mani' which means it should gather together everything that the Qur'an is and exclude everything that the Qur'an isn't. The author suggests a particular definition, but this definition in itself has a problem, and I think this is alluded to later on. But let's have a look at this definition and ask ourselves, like every definition, is it jami'un mani'un? Does it gather everything that the Qur'an is and does it exclude everything that the Qur'an isn't? Okay, the suggested definition is the Qur'an is, the, and you can get this from the text, inshallah. The Qur'an is the Arabic speech of Allah. This is a good point because when we define the Qur'an as the speech of Allah, we exclude the speech of everyone other than Allah Azza wa Jal. And when we say Arabic, we exclude the speech of Allah that was revealed in other than Arabic. Because the correct opinion is that the Torah and the Injil were from the speech of Allah Azza wa Jal. 
And they were not as they are today, the stories written by Fulan ibn Fulan al-Majhul. Yani someone we didn't know and someone else we didn't know. Yani Matthew who we don't know who he is and Mark who we don't know who he is and Luke who we don't know what he is and John who we don't know who he is. And this, the Injil was revealed as the speech of Allah So we want to exclude that and say the Arabic speech of Allah. However, according to Ahlus Sunnah, as opposed to Al Mutakallimin, the people of rhetoric, Ahlus Sunnah affirmed speech of Allah in Arabic other than the Quran. Ahlus Sunnah affirmed that there exists in Arabic the speech of Allah which is not the Quran. For example, Al Hadith. Al-Qudusi and Al-Hadith Al-Qudusi the majority of the scholars of Islam held that Al-Hadith Al-Qudusi is from the speech of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and this is the opinion of the Ashaira and the Maturidiyya and the Mutakallimeen but the Muhaqqiqeen from Ahl Al-Sunnah affirmed that the Hadith Qudusi is from the speech of Allah Azza wa Jal and not from the speech of the Prophet Sallallahu from the speech of the Prophet Sallallahu is that he said, your Lord said, or Allah said, or Allah Azza wa Jal said. And what follows is the speech of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And Allah speaks whenever He wants to whoever He wants. In whatever way that He wants. Therefore, this definition until here isn't enough. In wording and meaning. And the, the definition adds in wording and meaning. This part is interesting. And it's okay. I don't have a problem with it. However, it does beg the question of when is the speech of Allah in wording only and when is it in meaning only? And I think this is again from the mutakallimin and otherwise I, mean, I, I think it's fine as an emphasis yani as, an, as an emphasis that the speech of Allah is in wording and meaning both and that is what Ahl Sunnah affirm that when Allah speaks the order of the words and the linguistic framework and the any manipulation of the verbs and whatever else it is, all of this is from the speech of Allah And again, the mutakallimun are famous from excluding this issue from the speech of Allah. Aslan, they don't believe that Allah can speak whenever He wants to. And they don't affirm this for Allah. But they get themselves into knots because the Quran describes itself as the speech of Allah. وَإِنْ أَحَدٌ مِّنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ اسْتَجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْهُ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ And now the Ash'ari is stuck. Because he doesn't believe that Allah can speak when he wants to whoever he wants. And he doesn't believe what is between the two pages of the Mus'haf is the speech of Allah. So what can he do? He says, it's the speech of Allah 
in meaning but not in wording. And it's the speech of Allah, sort of. But actually it's not the speech of Allah. And there's a very amusing but very sad audio from a very, very famous Ash'ari speaker. I won't mention his name. Uh, but a very, very famous, one of the world's most famous uh, Western speakers where he gets himself into all kinds of knots because he brought himself a teacher and he brought a teacher from Mauritania or wherever it was to teach the people and the teacher, and he no blame on him he taught the people what the Ash'aris believe he said, all you people who are gathered here today in America the Quran is both created and uncreated and the, the mushaf that you read is not the speech of Allah. So the da'iyah from the Asha'ira, he became a bit upset. Because they have a principle that don't talk about this to the amma. Because they'll run away from you. When, you. when they hear this from you, they will leave you and become, you know, they'll run to Ahlul Sunnah. So he tries to explain. He says, you know what my sheikh said? It's true, but uh, you know, you shouldn't say this to people, otherwise you might get punched. And he's desperately trying to run away from this. And, try, and then he tries to explain why. So he quotes his other, one of their shiyukh in poetry. And he effectively says, the Quran is the speech of Allah, except the words, the letters, the word order, the grammar, the uh, sentence framework, and he goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And all of this is not from the speech of Allah. Tell you what is left? What is left after that? When you exclude the words and the word order and, 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 and what is left? Nothing. Except for a single constant sound which can never be heard. And this is the asal, yani asal, and this is what the Asha'ira believe the kalam of Allah is. That it is a single, never fluctuating, never changing, never, yani never making any words. It is a constant that has always been there and will always be there. And it cannot be heard outside of that, outside of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rather, what they have, they differ over the Quran, whether Jibreel translated the Qur'an for us or whether Muhammad translated the Qur'an for us and he brought the Qur'an. So Ahl sunnah affirmed that the wording and the meaning, all of it is from the speech of Allah And Aslanini, whenever you hear the speech of the mutakallimun, what does it do to you? It leaves you scratching your head and thinking, I can't understand why, I don't get it. It's, so, it's such a difficult thing to try to... And when you hear, if you hear this audio, he is desperately trying to explain to people why the Qur'an is still Kalamullah, but not Kalamullah. And this is what I told you about the mutakallimun. That their speech is of no benefit to anyone, especially not themselves. And that is why the likes of Al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala made tawbah from this at the end of their lives. Because they realize that there is no benefit in it at all. You know, you reach the end, the Quran is the speech of Allah, but it's not the speech of Allah. 
sort of, يعني 50-50 and they start to explain and it becomes very complicated and yet Ahlul Sunnah said Allah has always been able to speak and will always be able to speak He speaks when He wants, how He wants in a way that befits His majesty and His supremacy when we recite the Qur'an the voice that we recite in is created and the words that we recite are the uncreated speech of Allah from it, it began and to him it will return. You can explain this to a five-year-old child and he understands. Wallah, you can explain the position of the Asha'ira to a scholar who has spent the last 30 years studying Islam and he will not still understand it after you've explained it to him. And that is a clear sign of the difference between the truth and the falsehood. Because the truth is easy to understand. None of the Bedouin Arabs, when they heard this, None of them became confused. When Allah said, Allah spoke to Musa directly, with a direct speech. None of them became confused and came to the Messenger of Allah saying, how did he speak? What was the word? What about the ground? They understood it. They just said, okay, Allah spoke to Musa. Alhamdulillah. They understood it because it's easy to understand. And it's only... When they took Aristotle, people took Aristotle and Plato and all of these people and mixed it up, that they became confused about what this meant. Otherwise, it became simple in wording and meaning. Okay. But still, we haven't excluded the Hadith al-Qudusi. Because the Hadith al-Qudusi is this Arabic speech of Allah in wording and meaning, which he revealed to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So now we need to exclude the Hadith al-Qudusi. So we say, and which has been preserved in the Masahif, which has been preserved in the Mus'haf. It is the Arabic speech of Allah sent to Muhammad in wording and meaning, which has been preserved in the Mus'haf. And this excludes... The Hadith al-Qudusi now. Because the Hadith al-Qudusi is preserved in the books of Hadith. And not preserved in the Mus'haf, which is the Arabic copy of the Qur'an. There's a point here worth asking. Is all of the Qur'an preserved in the Mus'haf? And this here is where it gets complicated. And we can talk about this a little bit more maybe later on, but it's interesting because you have, for example, Al-Qira'at al-Shaza, the recitations which are not uh, preserved in the Mus'haf. And, and maybe the next part will interest, will sort of add to this confusion. And has reached us by mutawatir transmission. Mutawatir means that it's been narrated by so many people by so many people, that it is impossible for there to have been any lie or any mistake. This is the basic definition of al-mutawatir, that which is narrated by so many people that there is, it is impossible that there could be a lie or a mistake. Is it a condition for the Qur'an to be mutawatir, for it to be considered Qur'an? In this, the scholars of Qur'an differed considerably. And to the best of my knowledge, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, 
held the opinion that it is not a requirement for it to be mutawatir. Rather, it is only a requirement for it to be sahih. The ten qira'at that are well known, all of them are mutawatir according to the strongest opinion. The scholars agree that the seven are mutawatir. Okay, the seven qira'at that are gathered together in a shaghibiyah, for example, they agree that these seven qira'at are mutawatir. They're reported by so many people, there is an impossibility that there could ever have been even one letter mistake. They are reported by, by tens of people going to hundreds, to thousands, to hundreds of thousands, and today, down to millions of people. And they are reported from hundreds of thousands of people. And even at the time of the Sahaba, they are reported from tens and tens of people. They are reported mutawatir. The correct opinion is that the final three which make up the ten are also mutawatir. Although the scholars differ whether they are or not. That they are also mutawatir. After them comes many, many other qira'at. Many scholars then go to 14, then go to 20 something, and then, and then, and then beyond that. Even beyond the 20 something, there are individual qira'at that are not mutawatir. So the first 10 are absolutely mutawatir. After that, there becomes, the differences become stronger. And when you get above 14 and 15 and 16, you start getting to qira'at that are clearly not mutawatir. They are narrated by one person, or two people, especially among the Sahaba. And you see among the Sahaba, people who read, the only person who read the Qur'an like this is one Sahabi, Aisha, for example. It is narrated, used to read, حَافِظُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاةِ الْوُسْطَى الصَّلَاةِ الْعَصْرِ وَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ قَانِتِينَ Whether Aisha read like that or not is also a disagreement, because it was found in her mushaf. And they disagreed whether this is her tafsir or whether she used to read like this. But then, for example, uh, Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, uh, in, the hadith, in the ayah regarding uh, hajj, uh, regarding وَسَبَعَةٍ إِذَا رَجَعْتُمْ The three days that you fast, فَصِيَامُ ثَلَاثَةِ أَيَّامٍ فِي الْحَجِّ وَسَبَعَةٍ إِذَا رَجَعْتُمْ Fast three days in Hajj and seven when you return. He read ثَلَاثَةِ أَيَّامٍ مُتَتَالِيَاتٍ فِي الْحَجِّ وَسَبَعَةٍ إِذَا رَجَعْتُمْ Three continuous days in Hajj and seven when you return. And he with the word continuous. And he used to read it in his, in his salah. So these are examples of what we call qira'atun shadha, which is a recitation that is not supported by the rest of the people. It's a recitation that is not supported by the rest of the people. Now, in this issue of the recitation that is not supported by the rest of the people, is it Qur'an or not? Because if it is Qur'an, then this definition has an issue. Because this definition defines the Qur'an is that which is narrated by, by mutawatir transmissions. And in reality, these narrations are not narrated by mutawatir transmissions. 
They are limited to one person or two people. Because one of the conditions of mutawatir is it should be mutawatir in every level of the chain. And it's not that it's like one person, one person, one person, then a hundred thousand. And it should be ten people, ten people, ten people, ten people, ten people, hundred people, a thousand people. It should have in every level of the chain many, many, many people. The scholars unanimously agreed that the qira'at al-shadha, the rare recitations, we'll call them the rare recitations, those rare recitations are to be taken into account. Everyone agreed this. Because those recitations are one of two things. Either they are Qur'an or either they are Sunnah. Because nobody thinks that Ibn Abbas would recite something in his salah that he didn't hear from the Prophet But either they are Qur'an or either they are Sunnah. So they are to be taken into account and the scholars of hadith use them as an evidence. For example, the scholars of fiqh use the qira'ah of Ibn Abbas as an evidence for the obligation of the days of fasting when you don't find a sacrificial animal to be continuous days of fasting. Because Ibn Abbas either took this from the Qur'an or from the Sunnah. But the question comes, is it Qur'an? And some of the scholars said that it was Qur'an. So if we say that it is Qur'an, then we need to adapt this word mutawatir to sahih and say that has reached us by authentic transmissions and not mutawatir because there are some transmissions which are not mutawatir but they are authentic and is a challenge to mankind to produce something similar to it and there's no issue with that there is a the Qur'an is a challenge to mankind to produce something similar to it. So really the confusion we have is this mutawatir transmission issue. That's the, the area of the definition that we would most want to ask ourselves about. There's no doubt that the overwhelming majority of the recitations of the Qur'an are transmitted by mutawatir transmissions. But is it a condition? Furthermore, this issue of being preserved in the masahif, what about the Qur'an that has been abrogated and is no longer in the Qur'an? For example, وَالشَّيْخُ وَالشَّيْخَةُ إِذَا زَنَيَا فَرْجُمُوهُمَا The old man, yani the married man and the married woman, if they commit zina, stone them. This is an ayah that was recited by the Messenger of Allah in the Qur'an. Then Allah Azza wa Jal commanded for it to be removed from the Qur'an, but for it to be remain in, 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 in ruling. The ruling remains, but the wording is removed. This is still part of the Qur'an. So this also... And he leads a question about being preserved in the Musahif. Is it a condition that all of the Qur'an should be preserved in the Mus'haf? And the reason I'm giving you this in this definition is I just want you to understand. The definition is fine. There's no issue with the definition. But I want you to understand that every definition that is given for anything, for hadith, for fiqh, for tafsir, for Qur'an, for anything, has 
areas about it that you can maybe raise and say, okay, is all of the Quran preserved in the Masahif? Is it, you can argue yes, you can say because this Quran that was preserved in the Mus'haf and now is no longer preserved in the Mus'haf is no longer a part of the Quran. And it's no longer a part of the Quran. And it was taken away by Allah Azza wa Jal, by the Prophet on the command of Allah. Therefore, it is no longer a part of the Quran. However, this is something that you as a student should get used to, which is naqd al-ta'rif any criticism of the definitions looking at the definition saying really did you include everything or did you miss something out here is there something you could better change is all of the quran mutawatir and this is the opinion of the majority the majority said all of the quran is mutawatir but what about the qiraat that were recited by other companions individually should we consider them to be from the Qur'an or not? The majority said no. The majority said the Qira'ah of Ibn Abbas is not from the Qur'an. It is a, a recital of the Qur'an which is not classed as being a part of the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an is only that which is mutawatir. However, some of the scholars, among them to the best of my recollection, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said they are from the Qur'an and he used to recite them in his salah. Because if they are authentic, and Ibn Abbas used to recite them then, or Aisha used to recite them, or one of the other companions, then this is enough for us that they are authentic. And so there are some issues here. Don't let these issues be a reason to doubt the Qur'an. The Qur'an is no different to how you imagined it to be. It is preserved, it is completely perfect from beginning to end. These recitals or recitations are part of the miracle of the Qur'an that you can have a book that is recited 10, 14, 20 different ways and every single different way is authentic and every single different way supports the other. This is a part of the miracle of the Qur'an. And someone asked me last week, which one of them is from the Sunnah? The answer is all of them. No, no, no qira'ah is better than another qira'ah. Hafs is not better than Warsh. And is not better than Qalun. And is not better than, for example, any, some of the other qira'at, unless you say that the ones that are mutawatir and mashhur are better than the ones who, which are rare and, and, uh, and, and not well known. But in general, all of the ways the Prophet ﷺ read of the Qur'an are all Qur'an. And all of them are worthy of being recited. And so generally, that's why we say there isn't a case that one of them is preferred over the other one, or that one of them is better than the other one, or one of them is the sunnah and the other ones were done later on. Then the brother said, which one did the Prophet ﷺ recite? And the answer is all of them. He recited like this and like that. And so this gives you a confidence in the Qur'an. But yes, the Qur'an is more complicated than the average Muslim thinks of it. And the average Muslim, and if you read, for example, Surat al-Ladina an'amta alayhum, he will say you're reading the Qur'an wrong. And the average Muslim cannot understand that the Qur'an is more complicated than just the Mus'haf that he has in front of, of him. That for him, you know, that is the Qur'an and that's it. 
and there can never be anything of being removed or added or changed or yeah, in different ways of reciting or different uh, styles or different any for, for that person any the Quran this is the Quran and anything that's not here is not the Quran but the reality is more complicated than that but still miraculous and still preserved so the preservation of the Quran is not not under question nobody has questioned the preservation of the Quran the next question which perhaps could have been added to the definition and is interesting another interesting question that we could have added to the definition as we're going to hear at some point about the history of the Quran inshallah if Allah is which gives us time to be able to, to do it the companions came together and unanimously agreed upon the Mus'haf, which is known as the Mus'haf of Uthman. And the Mus'haf of Uthman, the Mus'haf of Uthman, supported all of the Qira'at. In other words, if you ever wanted to know why it is that some of the words in the Qur'an are written a little bit different to regular Arabic, Generally, it is so that all of the qira'at can be accommodated in one mushaf without the dots and without the fatha, dhamma, kasra. So without the dots on the ta and the ya and the ba and the noon and the jim and the ha and the kha, without any dots and without fatha, dhamma, kasra. Just the plain shape of the words. If you were to take the plain shape of the words, the Mus'haf that we have accommodates all of the different ways of reciting. And that is why if you look at the word Malik in Maliki Yawmiddin, what do you see about the Alif? Malik is written Meem, Lam, Kaf, joined together. And the Alif is written as a small Alif above between the Meem and the Lam. And we read Malik. Why is it written like this? Because it accommodates those who read Malik. If you had written it with an alif, a, a proper alif, you can only read it Malik. There is no other way to read it. However, since it is written with a small one, in the Mus'haf of Uthman, it accommodates reciting Malik and it accommodates reciting Malik. So it was written in such a way that accommodated all of the Qira'at. Why am I telling you this? Many of the scholars did put a condition. They said it's not a condition for it to be mutawatir, but it is a condition that it should match the Mus'haf of Uthman. And they defined, you see, there's a diff difference of opinion over what is Qira'a Shaza, what is a rare recitation. Some of them said every recitation which is not mutawatir is rare. Others said, and I think this is the stronger opinion, every recitation which does not match the Mus'haf of Uthman is rare. In every recitation which is, does not match the Mus'haf of Uthman. So the recitation according to my teacher of Qira'at and, uh, and the teacher that taught me Ulum al-Qur'an at this, this issue, he said that the stronger opinion is that the Qira'ah which is Sahihah, it's authentic without any doubt. Yani it's, the chain of narration is authentic and it matches the Mus'haf of Uthman, this is what we call the Qur'an. And so he would have taken the word mutawatir out and said, 
instead of that, preserved in the Mus'haf of Uthman, and he preserved in the Mus'haf of Uthman and has reached us by a Sahih transmission. And he would have said anything that doesn't match the Mus'haf of Uthman is considered to be Shadha. Yani it's rare. It doesn't mean it's not Quran, but it means that it's considered to be rare. We don't recite it in our prayer and we don't recite it as part of the Quran when we read the Quran. So the one that we recite is the one that all of the companions unanimously agreed. So the companions, when they were gathering together, some of them would have said, I read it like this, I read it like this. The only thing that went into the Mus'haf of Uthman is that which all of the companions unanimously agreed upon. That is, you know, that is accommodated within the Mus'haf of, of Uthman, radiallahu anhu. So this is another issue, you know, something else to think about when it comes to the definition. But the definition is not bad. The Quran is the Arabic speech of Allah, which he revealed to Muhammad in wording and meaning, and which has been preserved in the Mus'haf and has reached us by mutawatir transmissions as a challenge to mankind to produce something similar to it. And in any case, there are lots and lots of definitions. There is a mas'ala regarding uh, the, still this definition. We are still doing the definition. Regarding the word Arabic. Is all of the Qur'an Arabic? This is one of those issues that when the scholars differed over it, it caused people immense confusion. Allah Azza wa Jal clearly says the Qur'an is in Arabic. Qur'anan Arabiya. بِلِسَانٍ عَرَبِيٍ مُبِينٍ In a clear Arabic tongue. However, there appear to be words in the Qur'an which many would suggest are foreign words. They don't have an Arabic origin. From those are words like, for example, the names of the, the prophets, Ibrahim, and Musa and Yusuf. And we know in Arabic grammar that foreign proper nouns are mamnu' min sarf That means that they, they end in a single dhamma and they don't take a, they, or a fatha and they don't take kasra. And that is what we see in the Quran about these names. For example, uh, وَتِلْكَ حُجَّتُنَا آتَيْنَا إِبْرَاهِيمَ عَلَىٰ قَوْمِ نَرْفَعُ دَرَجَاتٍ مَنْ نَشَاءِ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ حَكِيمٌ عَلِيمٌ وَوَهَبْنَا لَهُ إِسْحَاقَ وَيَعْقُوبَ كُلًّا هَدَيْنَا وَنُوحًا هَدَيْنَا مِنْ قَبْلُ وَمِنْ ذُرِّيَّتِهِ دَاوُدَ وَسُلَيْمَانَ وَأَيُّوبَ وَيُوسُفَ وَمُوسَى وَهَارُونَ يعني that the words are written as مَمْنُوعٍ مِنَ الصَّرْفِ 
And if the words are written without kasra, when they should have kasra, and without two fathas, when they should have two fathas. So this would indicate that the words are, are foreign. That's what you do when you say, for example, I don't know, Robert or something like that, or John. And in Arabic, you give it a single dhamma or a single fatha. You don't give it tanween and you don't give it kasra. So the scholars became, I mean, there, there's a lot of debate. People said, how can you say the Quran has foreign words when Allah said, Quran and Arabiya. And Allah said, Lisan in Arabiyin Mubin, a clear Arabic tongue. The strongest opinion in this is the opinion of, for example, Abu Ubaid Al Qasim ibn Salam. Rahimahullah ta'ala, one of, the, one of the major scholars of Islam of the past. He died in 224 years after the Hijrah. He said, the correct opinion with me is that both of the above opinions are correct. This is because the origin of these words are foreign. However, the words entered the Arabic language and were transformed to Arabic words. And the foreign letters were exchanged for Arabic ones until they became a part of Arabic. Then the Quran was revealed. And by this time, these words had mixed into the Arabic language. Therefore, he who says the Quran is only Arabic is correct. And he who says that there are foreign words is also correct. What does this mean? Originally, there are words whose origin any origin a thousand years before the Quran was not Arabic. However, these words were brought into Arabic, like words are brought into English. The foreign letters were converted to Arabic letters, were converted to Arabic letters, and the Arabs spoke of these words as though they were Arabic words. And therefore, when the Qur'an was revealed, it was revealed only in Arabic, in the words which were in the vocabulary of the Arabs at that time. However, the origin of those words may well be of foreign origin. <coughs> and this way, we, jo we join between the two issues in such a way that we don't deny what is obviously there, but we still uh, affirm what the Qur'an says. And it's a simple example of that. For those of you who are familiar with Hebrew, will be familiar that the stronger opinion regarding the name of Moses is that it was Moshe. With a sheen and an A sound at the end, Moshe. And until this day in Hebrew, they pronounced the name of Moses as Moshe. And many of the scholars said this was the name of Moses, Moshe. However, the Arabic version of that name, when the name is converted into Arabic, is Musa. Is Musa. And that is the name, when it is converted into Arabic, that is how the Arabs said the name Moshe. They changed the sheen for a scene. And in Arabic you can say it Musa or Musa. 
both. And the Quran has both. You can read it Musa and Musa. And in Hebrew, I don't know if you can read it Musha and Mushe, but I know that the common Hebrew pronunciation of it today is Mushe. Therefore, this word originally in Hebrew was Mushe. Then it was brought into Arabic and the Arabs pronounced it as Musa or Muse, both. And this is the proper Arabic pronunciation of the name. And it's incorrect in Arabic to say Moshe. The proper Arabic pronunciation is Musa or Muse, both. This is the proper Arabic pronunciation. And therefore the Quran spoke of Musa in the proper Arabic pronunciation. Likewise, Isa, I don't recall what Isa was originally, but it was very close to the word Isa, but not exactly as the word Isa. But in Arabic, it was brought in and spoken by the Arabs as Isa. And the correct way to say it in Arabic is Isa, and it became an Arabic word. It became an Arabic name, Isa as opposed to the origin, which is Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever it may be, one of the sister languages of Arabic. So we can see from this that these words had a foreign origin. But when they were spoken, they were considered to be pure Arabic words. When they were revealed in the Quran, the Arabs considered them to be pure Arabic words that had an origin which was, which was foreign. So that is a useful, uh, a useful point to note in that regard. And it shows you how people can argue over something and both of them can miss the point. Yeah, like it shows you something important. It can happen that two large groups of people are, you know, battering each other. And you know, how dare you say there are foreign words in the Quran? And the other one is saying, how dare you say that Musa is an Arabic word? And they are, you know... How can it be mamnu' min as-sarf? How can you say Ibrahima and then say that it's an Arabic word and, you know, fighting each other until they realized that actually both of them had a portion of the truth and the truth was actually in the middle. That the word originally was foreign, but by the time the Quran was revealed, it was a pure Arabic word and the Quran contains no foreign words that were foreign at the time it was revealed. The next thing that I want to talk about, which I also think is important, inshallah we're trying to touch upon each point, but I thought that definition is worth spending some time because it, it gives you lots of other points about Ulum al-Quran. The Quran being the speech of Allah, and I keep coming back to this, but this is important because this is what differs or differentiates between uh, this is what differentiates between the people of the Sunnah and the other groups. So it is important to affirm the Quran as the speech of Allah Azza wa Jal.
Allah Azza wa Jal said in the Quran, وَكَلَّمَ اللَّهُ مُوسَى تَكْلِيمًا Allah spoke directly to Musa, كَلَّمَ and he directly and then taklima with a clear speech. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَتَمَّتْ كَلِمَةُ رَبِّكَ صِدْقًا وَعَدَلًا The word, the speech, the words of your Lord have been fulfilled in truth and justice. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, قُلْ لَوْ كَانَ الْبَحْرُ مِدَادًا لِكَلِمَاتِ رَبِّي لَنَفِدَ الْبَحْرُ قَبْلَ أَن تَنْفَدَ كَلِمَاتُ رَبِّي وَلَوْ جِئْنَا بِمِثْلِهِ مَدَدًا Allah said, if the oceans were ink, to write the speech of my Lord, and the words of my Lord, then the oceans would run out before the words of my Lord finished, even if you brought equal to them in volume. And Allah said, the word or the speech of Allah is the, is the highest. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, Salamun qawlan min Rabbin Rahim. Salam, a statement, a speech from a Lord who is most merciful. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, Tilka rusulu faddalna ba'dahum ala ba'd, minhum man kallam Allah. These messengers, we preferred some of them over others. Among them were those who Allah spoke to. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, relating what he said to Musa, Inni ana rabbuk, tuwa. I am your Lord, so take off your shoes, you are in the sacred valley of Tuwa. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, إِذْ نَادَاهُ رَبُّهُ بِالْوَادِ الْمُقَدَّسِ تُوَى When his Lord called out to him in the sacred valley of, of Tuwa. The Prophet said about Musa, relating what Adam asked him, Are you the one whom Allah spoke to from behind a veil? And there was no interpreter between you and him, nor was there any messenger. And the Prophet ﷺ said, When Allah decrees a matter in the skies, the, angel move, the angels move their wings in humility for his speech, which sounds like the cha a chain uh, beating a rock. And so on and so on. And there are many, many, many other uh, evidences in this regard. And we know... The ayah that we've quoted before from Surah At-Tawbah, وَإِنْ أَحَدٌ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ اسْتَجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ There is nothing in those ayat which would indicate that the meaning of kalam is anything other than speech. And the fact that the word kalam is used, the word qawl is used, the word nida is used, a calling, you don't call someone except with a sound. You can't say, I called someone except with a sound. Qawlun, yes, you can say with a sound and without a sound. But kalam, you cannot say unless it has a sound, unless it has words. 
All of this comes together to indicate to us that this Quran is the speech of Allah Azza wa Jal. And uh, one of the ways that we can evidence or we can explain to people their confusion is to say this. Because most people's confusion is over the fact that the Quran can be recited. This is the biggest confusion people have. And most people, where they get confused is that I'm reciting the Quran. Let me say it to you very simple. You pick up a book of, let's say for example, a book of hadith. And you say, the Prophet said, This speech, whose speech is it? Everyone here says, it is the speech of the Prophet Okay, but I'm saying it, so why is it not my speech? You say, Muhammad Tim, you just recited the speech of the Prophet in your own voice, but what you said was the speech of the Prophet Did the Prophet keep on saying it again and again and again and again? No, he said it one time. But I am relating to you a speech which is the speech of the Prophet If you understand that, then you understand how the Quran is the speech of Allah. Because when I'm reciting the Quran, I am reciting to you the uncreated speech of Allah. My voice is created. I am created. But just like when I recite to you the speech of the Prophet ﷺ, it is his speech, then just like when I recite to you the speech of Allah, it is his speech, not mine. And from this, the scholars avoided and criticized the one who said, my recitation is created. Because it is confusing what this person means. Do they mean the words I am reciting or do they mean the voice that I am reciting with? Because both of them could be meant by the statement. And this is why it is important and another lesson we will learn very clearly is when we speak, we speak carefully. That we don't make a big mistake and say my recitation is created. Because recitation can refer to the words you are reciting or the voice you are reciting in. But rather you should say what the scholars of, past, of the past said. The sound, the voice, is the voice of the reciter. And the words, the speech and the words that are being recited are the speech of Al-Bari, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Amr ibn Dinar said, I have met the companions of the Prophet ﷺ and those that came after them for 70 years. All of them said, Allah is the creator and everything besides him is created and the Quran is the speech of Allah. From him it came and to him it will return. And Abu Hanifa rahimullah ta'ala wrote in Fiqh al-Akbar, the Qur'an is the speech of Allah written in the Mus'haf, preserved in the hearts, recited by the tongues and revealed to the Prophet ﷺ and he said the Qur'an is not created. And Imam Malik was asked regarding the one who says the Qur'an is created. 
He said he should be forced to repent, and if he refuses, his head should be cut off. And an Imam al-Shafi'i said, whoever says the Qur'an is created is a disbeliever. And an Imam Ahmad said, it has been narrated from many of the early generation that they used to say, the Qur'an is the speech of Allah, it is not created. This is what I believe. And I am not a person of philosophy, nor do I think that philosophy plays a part in our beliefs. The only source is the Qur'an or the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ or a statement of the companions or the tabi'een. Anything besides this, then none of it is praiseworthy. And this is just a selection from the four imams. That the Qur'an is the speech of Allah. It is uncreated in every aspect. Al-Imam al-Tahawi wrote in Al-Aqid al-Tahawiyya, the Qur'an is the speech of Allah. It originated from him as an articulated speech in a manner that is not questioned and was revealed to his Prophet ﷺ by inspiration. The believers testify to its revelation. They are certain that it is the actual speech of Allah, not created unlike the speech of humans. Whoever hears it and thinks it is the speech of a man is a disbeliever whom Allah has condemned and threatened to the fire of hell. For Allah says, I will burn him in hellfire to the one who said, In hadha illa qawlu bashar. This is only the statement of a man. Al-Lalakai uh, transmitted reports of 550 imams of the early generations. All of whom said the Qur'an is the speech of Allah, it is uncreated in every aspect. Over a hundred of those were imams whose madhab used to be followed by the people. And so on. So inshallah this is enough to give people conviction that ta'ala, what is being said is indeed the truth about which no one differed. And you know, I will, you know, last point I will say on this, but I want you guys to have, because wallahi, this is what, if you're going to talk about confusion in the Quran, this is the one that people will bring. Is that sadly, those people who hold this opinion, like that da'iyah in America, who I told you about, he said, this is the position, yani that the Quran is created, this is the position of Ahlul Sunnah. What does he mean by this? He means the people who came after Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari. And 300 years after the Hijrah, 400 years after the Hijrah, 500 years after the Hijrah. And they will say to you, don't you know that our scholars and Nawawi and Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar and, and, and so on and so on and so on, until they will make you believe that nobody held an opinion other than this. And that nobody held an opinion other than the opinion that the Qur'an is created whereas if you look at the Salaf you look at the earliest generations the time before let's say 300 years or 250 years after the Hijrah before this nobody held the opinion the Quran is created the four Imams considered the one who says this to be kafir and we don't make takfir of the of these people, yani, because they're, they're ignorant, they don't know what they are saying. And they are not, they, they say Allah has a speech, but it's not, it is and it isn't. So they became confused. But ultimately, don't let anybody ever say to you 
that the position of the Asha'ira is the position of Ahlul Sunnah. They have continued to be scholars from Ahlul Sunnah throughout the generations yani, until, until today in the 10,000, 1,900, 800, 700, 600, Alhamdulillah. However, when you look at the Tabi'een and the generation that came after them, you do not see anybody, anybody have these opinions. And the same with regard to these innovated celebrations and the funny things people do. Ask them, show me somebody who did this in the first 300 years. Forget the first 100 years. I will give you 300 years to tell me someone who celebrated Milat. Yalla, I'll give you 400 years, go on, 400 years to find me anybody who celebrated. Even if you can find a Bedouin in the village who did it. Wallahi, you'll not find anybody at all, not even one person. And then they tell you, this is the opinion of Ahlul Sunnah. Yani this is the majority. It's not the majority, ikhwan. It is something that was established yani 450, 420, whatever years after the Hijrah by the Fatimiyun, the Shia. Yani by the Shia Fatimiyun in Egypt. Yani who even the Shia of the Rafid are considered to be kuffar. Look at this, yani. Look at where you take your belief from. Don't let anybody say to you that these beliefs are the beliefs of the mainstream. Because look, everybody today, look in all the countries in the Muslim world today. Look at the majority. How can yani, one billion people be wrong and only, you know, 200 million are right and one billion are wrong? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, if you follow most of the people on the earth, they will take you away from the path of Allah. Look at Sabilillah. If you look at the early generations, this is the way you can distinguish the truth from the falsehood. In the later generations, you will find every opinion about this is halal, this is haram, do this, don't do this, believe this, don't believe this. You'll find it in every opinion in the later generations. But you go back to the time of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. Imam Malik, Imam al-Shafi'i, Imam Ahmad, go before them to the time of the Tabi'een al-Hasan al-Basri and Imam al-Zuhri, Sufyan al-Thawri, Ibn Uyayna. Go back before them to the time of the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum and in the time of you know, this, the, early, and the, the earliest of the Tabi'een and so on. Keep going back and see, do you find any of these beliefs among those people? You find them saying, whoever believes the Qur'an is created is kafir. And then 300 years later, like the Christians, yani the Council of Nicaea, 310 or 300 and something, 20 years after Isa, they decided that there is a trinity. And now the Christians say to you what? The trinity is the mainstream opinion. This is the majority. How can the majority be wrong? For 310 years, nobody believed in a trinity. Except a handful of... Yani, crazy people, nobody believed in the Trinity for 310 years. Nobody had a belief in the Trinity, except for yani, like a handful. And it was, they were the minority. They were considered to be rejected. They were considered to be innovators. Then, after 300 something years, it became the mainstream. Sometimes the Muslims fall into the same error. They take a belief that before 300 years from the Hijrah was not known to anyone and it was definitely not a mainstream belief it was a belief held by people who were executed for that belief and if somebody would like a, a imam malik said they would lose their head for holding this belief 
Then, 300 years after the Hijrah, 400 years, 500 years, 600 years, now it becomes the norm and people say, how can you say that we are wrong when all of the scholars of Islam believed what we believed? And they'll throw some names in there of scholars you know, like An-Nawawi or so on. Did An-Nawawi hold this opinion? First of all, whether he did or he didn't, we don't follow any. Our religion is not dictated by any imam from the imams of Islam. It's dictated by the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. And nobody else. And so don't allow people to put this false, to peddle this false narrative. That they will tell you that, look, I can name you a thousand imams who said the Quran is created. Okay. Did any of them live before 300 years after the Hijrah? Not even one. Okay, what did all of those guys say? They, well, they said, if you say it, you're kafir and you should lose your head. Okay, so now which one shall we follow? Which one shall we follow, them or them? So don't allow people to, you know, to mix up and give you a false narrative because this is the most common thing I have seen. They will say this, their opinion of Ahlul Sunnah is this. Ahlul Sunnah is not today, nor is it the time of Ibn Taymiyyah, nor is it the time before him. And the real meaning of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah is to stick to the opinion of the companions and those who, from the earliest of the generations who followed that belief. You go back to their time and you don't find the confusion that existed in the later uh, times. So again, I take, took a lot of time to explain this, but I think it is one of the most important things that you can learn. Study for yourself, don't take it from me, I am any an ordinary person, I make mistakes and I get things wrong and I misquote and I forget and all of the other things. But when somebody gives you a belief, ask yourself, was this belief taught by the Prophet ﷺ and his companions and the tabi'een and the tabi'ul atba' and the great imams of Islam? Or was this belief introduced like the Council of Nicaea 300 years after the death of the Prophet ﷺ? Don't confuse one with the other. Okay. I'm going to skip forward now um, to the issue of gradual revelation. I think this is important because this leads us to another important issue. Because one of the biggest shubahat that the non-Muslims have regarding the Qur'an is the doubt that the Qur'an has been tampered with. And you can understand why the non-Muslims make such a claim. Not because it has any truth, by the way. But because if they can't prove the Qur'an has been tampered with, then Islam is the truth. The only way they can say Islam is not the truth is if they can somehow prove that the Qur'an has been tampered with. The first thing they will try to do, by the way, is to prove to you the sunnah has been tampered with. Because this is a little easier for them. You know, like the Quran is a, is a big one, so they aim for the Sunnah first of all. Because most people don't know much about the Sunnah. And they don't know much about Ilmul Hadith, the science of Hadith. So they try to confuse you 
that the, and detach you from the sunnah. So you stop praying, you know, you start praying three times a day instead of five times a day, and you stop every salah is two raka'ah, and then you, you know, you start, stop uh, doing all of the obligatory deeds, and you know, so on, until, until they leave you with, you know, the bare minimum. And then they try to convince you that the Qur'an has been tampered with. And they use various historical events to twist them in such a light that makes it look like the Qur'an has been tampered with. And they benefit from the narrative, for example, of the Shia. Because the, many of the Shia said that the Qur'an has been tampered with. Since it doesn't contain any wording of imamah, then they got themselves in trouble because the single most important thing in their religion is al-imamah, the belief that there are divinely appointed imams that have been given to rule the world in a time when there is no prophet. That is the single most important belief of a tashayyur. I mean, there is no belief in tashayyur more important than the belief that in a time when there is no prophet, there are divinely appointed imams. But the problem is in the whole of the Qur'an from the beginning to the end, and you leave the issue of Ali. The issue of Ali is, is not a problem. If Ali is not mentioned in the Qur'an, it's no issue. But the issue for them is why is the entire concept of imama not mentioned in the Qur'an? The entire belief that in a time when there is no prophet, there will be divinely appointed imams that will rule the people is not mentioned anywhere in the Qur'an. So this put their scholars in big trouble. Because how do you tell people? A few of them tried to say, you know, they tried to. They tried to like find it somewhere in the Quran. We made them a'imma when they after they showed patience. They they tried to find any word of imam in the Quran to try to justify it. But ultimately, many of their scholars said the Quran was tampered with. And the verses relating to Imama were taken out of the out of the Quran because ultimately they didn't have a choice. Since their entire belief system of takfir of the Sahaba, of everything is based on this one concept. Like everything comes back to this. Every single thing comes back to this concept of Imama. If Imama is not in the Quran, so for sure the non-Muslims took advantage of that and used this speech to as one justification. But they said this is not going to wash with most people because most people are going to see this is like, you know, they're going to taste al-Khomeini in it. Yani. So they're going to like, they're going to reject this. So what are they going to do? They said we've got to find something else that we can convince people that the Quran has been tampered with. Why don't we use the events of gathering the Mus'haf? So why don't we tell the people that when Abu Bakr gathered the Mus'haf, into a single Qur'an, it was tampered with. This is difficult, because the companions were all together. What else can we find? Uthman burnt some of the masahif. This is it. Uthman burnt some copies of the Qur'an. This is narrated by Al-Sunnah and the Shia Hatta. Everybody narrates that Uthman burned certain copies of the Qur'an. So the Orientalist and the, the guy who is trying to convince you to become Christian, he says, Uthman tampered with the Qur'an and burnt the bits he didn't like. Which happens to match the narrative of the Shia, who also say the same thing. And so everyone is on the same page. Ahl-Sunnah believe Uthman burnt some copies of the Qur'an 
and everybody else says Uthman burned copies of the Quran, so it's a historical fact. So now we can use this to convince people that Uthman burnt the parts of the Quran he didn't like and kept the parts that he did. And so it's important for us to understand how the Quran was revealed so that we can respond to this argument convincingly. First of all, any Muslim who hears this, and he just using your intellect, just using your mind for just a few moments to think, is it realistic that Uthman burns parts of the Quran that he doesn't like? Where are the rest of the Sahaba? And where is Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu? He's there burning as well. And he's, he, he's, they said, yeah, he was, you know. And one of the strangest things about this is that those people who use the burning of the Quran to justify the imamah of Ali ibn Abi Talib have to answer the fact that Ali ibn Abi Talib was the one helping Uthman to do this. So how do you justify this? They said, yeah, he was so weak and oppressed that he had to... And he was mukrah, and he was forced to do so out of a fear of his life. So he had to use what we call tawriya and they call tuqiyya. And he, uh, he had to use a false lie about his belief in order because of his fear for himself. Okay, so we just say to them one thing. Is this consistent with Ali ibn Abi Talib? Ali ibn Abi Talib that all of us know. And he one of the most brave, one of the most powerful, strong people in the history of Islam was so scared of Uthman that he had to commit open disbelief that would cause billions of people to become kuffar after him because he was too scared of Uthman to be able to tell the people what he was doing. Is this realistic? And is this from what you know of Ali ibn Abi Talib and his bravery and his honesty and his standing for the truth? Is that realistic? Is that consistent? Furthermore, let's just imagine Ali ibn Abi Talib is a divinely appointed imam with the status of a prophet or higher than a prophet. Who then causes the majority of the world to disbelieve after him because he didn't have the moral strength to be able to stand up for the truth and be martyred because of it. I mean, which one of you loves Ali ibn Abi Talib and which one doesn't? Like, just put it simple. Like, this narrative doesn't make any sense. And he divinely appointed Imam, given a level higher than the prophets and the messengers, and he goes and commits open kufr because he is scared of one person. This is not possible. This is not, nobody could believe this about. Ali ibn Abi Talib, not knowing his history, his biography, his seerah, his defensor, the one who lied in the bed of the Prophet ﷺ when the Prophet ﷺ made hijrah, ready to die at the hands of the mushrikeen, is going to be scared of any Uthman? It's not possible. This is not a sensible narrative. It doesn't make any sense at all. And likewise, this is what the Orientalists and the non-Muslims, they just take a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this. And then they also use the qira'at al-shadha. So they say, look, I've got a proof that Uthman burnt the Qur'an. And he, where is the statement of Ibn Abbas, Mutataliyat? Show me in your Mus'haf, where does it say Mutataliyat? It doesn't say Mutataliyat. See, I told you Uthman burnt the Qur'an. He burnt the word Mutataliyat. This word was in the Qur'an before. And they will try to find anything they can find to mix up and stir up 
anything that will make you believe the Qur'an has not been preserved. So what you have to do is you begin with a basic principle. That this narrative doesn't make any sense. Yes, we will talk about the specific details of what Uthman did, radiallahu anhu. But this narrative itself doesn't make sense. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't apply to what we know from Islam, in the whole of Islam in general. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't go. So when we talk about gradual revelation, we're going to deal with all these issues. How was the Qur'an revealed? How was it gathered? How was it assembled in the Mus'haf? And what did Uthman ibn Affan do? And what did Abu Bakr do? And how did that change the Qur'an, if it changed the Qur'an at all? Uh, and under whose orders was that done? And was it something that was a bid'ah? Because as well, did bid'ah jump on the bandwagon too? You know, like, because they've been left out, so they jump on too. And they say, see, I told you bid'ah is okay. Didn't Uthman ibn Affan burn the Mus'haf? Didn't Abu Bakr gather the Mus'haf into a book when it wasn't a book in the time of the Prophet And you leave yourself with everybody arguing against you. So let's take this stage by stage. Three stages of revelation. Stage number one. The Quran was written on the Lawh al-Mahfud. The Lawh al-Mahfud, which is the preserved tablet. That Allah Azza wa Jal wrote everything that will happen. The Prophet ﷺ said, the first thing that Allah created was the pen. He said to it, write. It said, O oh my Lord, and what shall I write? Allah said, write the destiny of all things until the day of judgment and this was preserved in the tablet which is known as Allah Al-Mahfuz Allah Azza wa Jal said Bal huwa Qur'anun majid fi lawhin mahfuz and Allah Azza wa Jal said innahu la Qur'anun kareem fi kitabin maknun it is a noble Qur'an in a book which is well guarded, i.e. the Lawh al-Mahfuz. From the Lawh al-Mahfuz, the Qur'an was sent down to the lower heavens in a place called Bayt al-Izzah. On Laylatul Qadr. Because Allah Azza wa Jal said, Inna anzalnahu fi Laylatul Qadr. We sent down the whole Quran, anzalnahu, any the whole Quran, on Laylatul Qadr. I.e., we sent it to a place in the lower heavens. And the whole Quran to a place in the lower heavens. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, Inna anzalnahu fi laylatin mubaraka. We sent it down on a blessed night. And Allah Azza wa Jal mentioned that this is Laylatul Qadr. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah said, The whole Quran was sent down on Laylatul Qadr. 
then whenever Allah wished to inspire something from the Qur'an, He would inspire it. And in another narration, it was then revealed in pieces over a period of 20 years. And Ibn Abbas mentions it was sent to a place called Baytul Izzah, the, the house of honor. In the lower heavens, we don't know where it was exactly. And it was then given in small pieces to the Prophet The final stage of the revelation of the Qur'an was that Jibreel brought those portions of the Qur'an which Allah commanded him to bring. وَإِنَّهُ لَتَنْزِيلُ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ نَزَلَ بِهِ الرُّوحُ الْأَمِينَ عَلَىٰ قَلْبِكَ لِتَكُونَ مِنَ الْمُنْذِرِينَ This Qur'an is truly a revelation from the Lord of the worlds which the trustworthy spirit has brought down, any Jibreel, to your heart, so that you may be one of the warners. And the way that this, was, this happened was in many different ways. Sometimes it was like the ringing of a bell. Sometimes Jibreel came in the form of a person. And you can read about this in the text that we have given you. There are many, many different ways that the, uh, or there are several different ways that the Quran was inspired to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And there are some ayat that were revealed directly to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, particularly the, yani the command of the Salah and so on. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, and if we look at the Quran in each of its stages, we can agree that it is impossible that the Qur'an was tampered with by the angels. This is the first thing. And we have to go stage by stage. I mean, we don't want to leave any, anything or any stone unturned. So we want to establish that the Qur'an was not tampered with by the angels. And that's not such a strange thing to say. Because among those people that we mentioned previously are those who say that Jibreel betrayed Allah with regard to the Qur'an. And they say, Khana, Khana, Khana al-Amana. He broke the trust, he broke the trust, he broke the trust by giving it to the wrong person. And from among them are those who say that Jibreel broke the trust by giving the Qur'an to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we want to establish that Jibreel did not break the trust and that the angels did not break the trust. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, لا يسبقونه بالقول وهم بأمره يعملون They do not speak until he has spoken. And the angels do not speak until Allah has spoken. And they act upon his command. And what did Allah describe Jibreel as? نَزَلَ بِهِ الرُّوحُ الْأَمِينَ The most trustworthy, and the trustworthy spirit, the one that there is no doubt about his trustworthiness. 
And Allah Azza wa Jal said, لا تحرك به لسانك لتعجل به إن علينا جمعه وقرآنه فإذا قرأناه فاتبع قرآنه Allah said, do not move your tongue in order to be hasty with it. Because the Prophet ﷺ used to worry about the memorizing the Qur'an. And he used to move his tongue to try to, either to try to, to bring some Qur'an yani to, for, for the revelation to come to him, or in order to remember the Qur'an that he had been given. And he would move his tongue trying to, trying to worry about the preservation and the relation of the, yani relating the Qur'an to the people. Allah said, do not move your tongue in order to hasten with it, like to try to bring it quicker than it will come. It is our responsibility to collect it and to give it to you. And when we have read it to you, then simply follow what has been recited. So Allah Azza wa Jal simply commanded the Prophet don't try to move your tongue to, to bring the Quran quicker. Just relax, follow what has been recited to you. And Allah Azza wa Jal affirmed also that the Prophet conveyed the Quran without error. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ya ayyuhal rusul, Allah azza wa jal said, Ya ayyuhal rusul, balligh ma unzil ilayka min rabbik. Ya ayyuhal rasul, balligh ma unzil ilayka min rabbik. Wa in lam tafal, fama balagta risalata. O Messenger, convey what was revealed to you from your Lord. And if you don't do it, then you have not conveyed his message. So Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحِيٌ يُوحَىٰ He doesn't speak from his own desires, it is only a revelation which is revealed. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, قُلْ مَا يَكُونُ لِي أَنْ أُبَدِّلَهُ مِنْ تِلْقَاءِ نَفْسِ Say it's not for me to replace the Qur'an from my own self. إِنْ أَتَّبِعُ إِلَّا مَا يُوحَى إِلَيْهِ I only follow what is revealed to me. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَلَوْ تَقَوَّلَ عَلَيْنَا بَعْضَ الْأَقَاوِيلِ لَأَخَذْنَا مِنْهُ بِالْيَمِينِ ثُمَّ لَقَطَعْنَا مِنْهُ الْوَتِي Allah said, if he were to invent, if the Prophet were to invent any false statement against us, we would take him in the right hand, then we would cut off his jugular vein, in his artery. So there can be no doubt that the Prophet conveyed the Quran as it was meant to be conveyed, and that Jibreel conveyed it to him as it was meant to be conveyed. There is no doubt whatsoever about that. And there is a wisdom in this gradual revelation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, 
وقرآنا فرقناه لتقرأه على الناس على مكس ونزلناه تنزيلا الله said it is a Quran that we have broken up into pieces so that you can read it to people over a long period of time a long period of time and we have sent it down with a clear and in clear stages and the disbelievers said وَقَالَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَوْلَا نُزِّلَ عَلَيْهِ الْقُرْآنِ جُمْلَةً وَاحِدًا the disbeliever said, if only the Qur'an were to be sent down a single, in one single piece. We have done it in this way to make your heart firm. And we have revealed it in stages. So from the blessing of Allah is that he had revealed the Qur'an in small pieces to the Prophet And that those pieces were not entirely, and those pieces were not entirely, or not in the order that we have in the Mus'haf now. So the next issue that we have to come to, the next issue that we have to come to, is the issue of if it is not in the order, who put it in its order that it is in now? Was it Abu Bakr? Or was it Uthman radiallahu anhu or Hafsa or any of the other companions who were involved in the Quran? We know that in the last year of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he revised the Quran with Jibreel twice. It was his usual custom to revise it once in Ramadan with Jibreel. In the last year, he revised it twice with Jibreel In other words, he read the Qur'an to Jibreel and confirmed that the Qur'an was, this is the final order and the final revelation. And interesting, we can ask the question, what is the first ayah to be revealed? Uh, There are many opinions, strangely enough, regarding the first ayah to be revealed. Uh, as we said, the correct one is that the first ayah was, or the first passage were the first five ayat of Surah Al-Alaq. Iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, khalaq al-insana min alaq, iqra' wa rabbuka al-akram, alladhi allama bil-qalam, allama al-insana ma lam ya'lam. And there is no doubt that this is the correct opinion. Why would some people say, for example, Ya ayyuhal muddathir? Because there was a break in the revelation of the Qur'an and the first of the ayat to be revealed was, for example, yani, was uh, Ya ayyuhal muddathir. Before, yani after that break. And every companion spoke about what they knew. Yani every companion spoke about what it is that they what it is that they knew of.
Some said Surah Al-Fatiha. Some said Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. But the correct opinion is that the first of the Quran to be revealed, and the strongest opinion is that the first of the Quran to be revealed was Iqra. Then there was a break. Then, Ya Iyuhal Mudathir, Kum Faantik. As for the last of the revelation, also the scholars differed. And the correct opinion is that the last of the revelation was not as many people think. Rather, this was among the latter part of the Quran, but it was not the last part of the Quran. The last part of the Quran to be revealed was the passage. Now, the stronger opinion is it's this passage, and not necessarily this one ayah, but this passage. Ayah number 281 from Surah Al-Baqarah. Fear the day that you will return to Allah, then everyone will be given recompense for what he earned and they will not be dealt with unjustly. Ibn Abbas said the Prophet ﷺ lived nine nights after this verse was revealed. And this ayah was revealed nine nights before the Prophet ﷺ passed away. And others reported similar things. And many of them reported similar, one ayah before, one ayah after, and so on. And it seems that the correct opinion... is that it was the passage around this ayah, either just before and finishing with this ayah, or with this ayah and one ayah after, or around this area. This is around this ayah number 281. This is the last ayah to be revealed. And the Prophet ﷺ died around about nine days after this ayah was revealed. And he told the companions where it went in the Qur'an. And he didn't leave the companions to put it where they want. He told them where this came and where this came in the Qur'an. So now we want to zoom forward a little bit to this topic of the gathering of the, the Mus'haf. And it's okay, you can, you can just add it into your notes here and then we can fix the notes around any. I want you to still read on these topics I've given you. I want you to read it from the text, inshallah. Because mostly it's not difficult. Yani. You can read Asbab al-Nuzul. You can read about yani, uh, the topic of uh, the, the gradual revelation. I've, I've listed the things that, I've listed the things that you, you should give particular attention to. And where I've listed, for example, we've done the first and last revelation. Uh, Makki and Medani versus uh, the different attributes of those. We'll try to cover some at the end in the last few minutes if we can. And let me see if I can find what I'm looking for.
Okay, so what I'm looking for is the compilation of the Quran. You've got this one in points. Let me see. Point number seven, any uh, topic number seven, the compilation of the Quran. Uh, because as I said, this is for me a very important, one of the most important topics that we should cover together. The rest of them, I, I still want you to read them and make notes. But it's not, they're not so hard to understand, like the Makki and Madani verses and some other things, inshallah. It's not so difficult to understand. But particularly we want to focus on the compilation of the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised us that the Qur'an would be preserved. He said, We have sent down the remembrance and we will keep it preserved. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, لا يأتيه الباطل من بين يديه ولا من خلفه تنزيل من حكيم حميد No falsehood will come to the Qur'an from in front or behind. It is a revelation from the one who is all wise and worthy of praise. <coughs> so the first thing that we have to deal with after we dealt with the angels and we dealt with the Prophet himself is during the life of the Prophet was the Qur'an preserved during his life? And how was it preserved? We need to understand that the Prophet ﷺ was sent to an illiterate nation. Allah said, He is the one who sent to the illiterate people a messenger from among them, reciting to them his ayat. And Allah described that the Prophet himself could not read and write. فَآمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ النَّبِيِّ الْأُمِّيِّ Believe in Allah and His Messenger, the unlettered Prophet. Yani the Prophet that is unable to read and write. And Allah described the wisdom behind this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَمَا كُنْتَ تَتْلُوْ مِنْ قَبَلِهِ مِنْ كِتَابٍ You did not used to recite any book before this. وَلَا تَخُطُّهُ بِيَمِينِكَ Nor did you used to write anything with your right hand. If you had done this, the people who followed the falsehood would have been in doubt. And if the Prophet was a famous writer, or a famous reciter, or a famous poet, before the Qur'an was revealed, they would say, this is just the best of his poetry. This is just the latest collection. This is what he has been refining over his life. But he was not known to have written anything, nor to have recited anything, nor to have been a poet. So when he brought this Qur'an, it was much more miraculous than if it had come from, for example, a writer or an author who then would have said, 
this is just what he authored or this is what he found. So this is why the argument they made or the statements they made about the Prophet when they said he was a poet and so on were invalid. Because in the first place he was not known to have recited a book nor to have written anything nor to have spoken anything before the Qur'an was revealed and he was not known for this. No doubt the Prophet ﷺ, and we all know, taught the Qur'an to his companions. And the Prophet ﷺ would send those companions to other places to convey the Qur'an to the people there. Such as Mus'ab ibn Umayr. Who was sent to Medina? Musa'ab was sent to Medina to teach the people of Medina the Quran, even though this was before the Hijrah. So it was not the complete Quran, but he was sent to teach the people what had been revealed of the Quran to the people of to the people of Medina. The Prophet sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Mecca to teach the Qur'an. The Prophet ﷺ sent Ali ibn Abi Talib and so on and so forth and to Yemen and, and many many other examples of companions being sent to various cities. One of the main jobs they would have had was to memorize the Qur'an. Those who were famous for memorizing the Qur'an among the companions included Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali and Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Abdullah ibn Amr and Abdullah ibn Abbas and Ubay ibn Ka'b and Mu'adh ibn Jabal and Zayd ibn Thabit and others. Some of which the Prophet ﷺ praised. He said, learn the Qur'an from four people, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, And Salim and Mu'adh ibn Jabal and Ubay ibn Ka'b. And in Bukhari, in another one, it mentions Abu Zayd, and Qais ibn Al-Sakan. <coughs> Al-Imam al-Dhahabi said that these were the companions who were the most, they were the foremost, the most famous in there recitation of the Qur'an. And it doesn't mean that they were the only four people who memorized the Qur'an. So this is the first issue you have to deal with. Because people will come along to you and say to you that the only four people knew the Qur'an. Everyone else was reliant upon these four people. That's not the case. But four people were given the highest tazkiyah, the highest reference from the Prophet ﷺ regarding the Qur'an. Or five, if you gather together the narrations of Al-Bukhari, four or five of them. Among them, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and Ubay ibn Ka'b, and Zayd, or six, and Zayd ibn Sabit, and Mu'adh ibn Jabal. And then you have also Salim, and you have Abu Zayd. So you have six in total. If you gather together the narrations of 
Bukhari, for example, you have six companions that were given here, Tazkiyah from the Prophet ﷺ, in that these are going to be the teachers of the Qur'an. And six people is a lot of people, but in any case, and you can add to that many, many others yani, who were famous for their recitation of the Qur'an. The Prophet ﷺ also commanded that the Qur'an be written down. But as you know, the Qur'an was written down on parchments. It was not written down in a bound book because it was being revealed in stages. And the stages were not in the right order. So you could not like have a book and then leave a space for an ayah. You don't know how big the ayah will be. You don't know how, where the ayah will be put. So it doesn't make sense to bind it into a book until the revelation is completely finished. Instead, it was on pieces of parchment. But these were very, very, very common. They included cloth, stones, date palm leaves, saddles, the shoulder blades of animals, and so on. Uh, Ibn Sa'd narrates that 24 different people were scribes for the Prophet ﷺ, among them the four Khulafa al-Rashidin and Zayd ibn Thabit, who used to write down the Qur'an for the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ said, do not write anything from me except the Qur'an. Whoever writes anything besides the Qur'an should burn it. This is an important narration. Whoever, whoever writes anything besides the Qur'an should burn it. That was a command not given to every one of the companions. It was given to the scribes. Why? Because we have other narrations, for, such as the narration of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, that the Prophet ﷺ said that he was made fun of for writing down everything the Prophet ﷺ said. He said, Uktub, write it down. Fawallahi, by Allah, nothing comes out of here except the truth. So the hadith were also written down. But the scribes of the Quran, they were commanded to only write the Quran so that the Quran would not be mixed with hadith or tafsir or anything else. From the, the companions who were well known for having a mushaf which was complete, included Ubay ibn Ka'b and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Umar ibn Khattab and Ali ibn Abi Talib and Aisha and Hafsa. All of them were among the companions who were known for having masahif, having yani, considerably, if not complete, then yani, very considerable collections of the ayat of the Qur'an. They were not complete copies. And you can't say that they had, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they had complete copies. But they were known for having gathered many, any, almost all or many of the ayat of the Qur'an together in one place. Ibn Mas'ud had 106 surahs in his mushaf. Like before, and this is before the mushaf was... was gathered together and standardized. He had 106. Uh, Ubay ibn Ka'b had less than 114 surahs. Uh, he also had a hadith and how to pray in his mushaf as well. 
Now somebody may use what Ubayy ibn Ka'b did and say, see, we told you. Ubayy ibn Ka'b, one of the major sources of the Qur'an, had things written in his mushaf that were not from the Qur'an. We say this was his personal copy. And so he kept a copy of the Qur'an as well as how to pray. And he kept the, how, the words like At-Tahiyyatu lillahi wa salawat How to make the, how to pray. And a hadith that he learned from the Prophet in his personal copy of the Mus'haf. However, when he collaborated with the companions to gather together the Mus'haf, he did not at that time put forward his hadith and his narrations. So that's the first answer to this issue. Uh, Zarqani writes, to summarize some of the companions who used to write the Qur'an in their personal copies, sometimes wrote material that was not part of the Qur'an. This material might be uh, explaining certain obscure phrases or prayers, dua or similar things. They were perfectly aware that this was not a part of the Qur'an. However, because of the scarcity of writing materials, and since these copies were for their personal use, they wrote these additions in the Mus'haf. Since there was no fear that they would be mixing them up with the Qur'an. As we said, the Prophet ﷺ used to recite the Qur'an to Jibreel and Jibreel used to recite it back to him. And that in the last year, he recited it twice. Why did then the Prophet ﷺ not command for the Qur'an to be compiled into one book during his lifetime? Firstly, we can say, there was no need Many, many of the companions had memorized the whole Qur'an. They were large in number altogether. If anyone doubted anything, they had, you know, you could ask all four of the people together. You could ask Ubayy ibn Ka'b and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Salim ibn Mu'adh ibn Jabal in one go. You did, not need to, you did not need to refer to your mushaf of the Qur'an. Number two, during the lifetime of the Prophet there was continuous revelation. It would not be feasible to put that in one book. As you said, if you miss one ayah, then how much space should you leave before you read, write the next ayah? There were not many writing materials. They did not have paper. They had, uh, you know, uh, skins of, of animals. They had tree leaves. They had, so it's not easy for them. So they had to write it, you know, as much as they could and just gather it together. Also, the arrangement was not chronological. As we said, sometimes one ayah will be revealed from the beginning, one ayah from the end, one ayah from the middle. So again, that would be very difficult. And it would not have included abrogation because verses during the life of the Prophet were being abrogated and, and added new verse, abrogation, new. And so it makes sense that the final binding and sort of preservation of the Quran should be done at the end, not at the beginning and not in the middle. The first compilation of the Qur'an was done under Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala an. And there were a number of reasons for this. Primarily the advice of Umar. And the advice of Umar was because there was in the battle of Yamama in 12 years after the Hijrah, that is only roughly a year and a bit after the Prophet died, 70 of the Hufad of the Qur'an were killed. And Umar became worried. He became scared. 
Look, before you used to be able to ask and everyone in the masjid, there's a, a full soft of people who've memorized the Quran. We just lost 70 people who are hafiz. If we don't gather this Quran together in one place and bind it, there is a danger that the Quran may be corrupted or lost. Abu Bakr said, I did not want to do something that the Prophet didn't do. However, Umar convinced Abu Bakr. And there, are, there is a dalil for this also. Allah Azza wa Jal describes the Quran as a kitab, as a book, i.e., something gathered together in one place, which is the meaning of kitab, yani something gathered together in one place. Therefore, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet indicated the gathering of the Quran into one book. However, they didn't, the Prophet didn't do it because it wasn't feasible to do in his lifetime. However, he clearly indicated, and it was Allah clearly indicated that this Quran is a single, is to be a single book with an order. The fact the Prophet taught it in order from the beginning to the end indicates the joining of it into a single book. Otherwise, he would have said, whatever ayah you read, just read it in, you have to read the passages, but whatever you read, you can read you know, here, there, anywhere. But he put it in order with the companions. Therefore, Abu Bakr, this is the, first, this is the second evidence. So one is the fact that the Quran describes itself as a kitab. The second is that the Prophet ﷺ taught it as a kitab, as a complete book, from beginning to end, and not as pieces and he taught it as a complete book and Allah revealed it as a complete book okay there's one more evidence which is equally strong and that is the ijma' of the companions the Prophet said my ummah will never gather together upon falsehood and it cannot be a bid'ah if there is ijma' ijma' cannot exist at the same time as bid'ah. There cannot be a bid'ah upon which there is ijma' because ijma' is dalilun shar'i, is a proof in Islam that is just the same as the Qur'an and the sunnah and, the, and we say the Qur'an, the sunnah and the consensus of the Muslims. So the Muslims reached consensus, there was nobody who dissented, nobody. After Abu Bakr was convinced, nobody was left saying we shouldn't do this. So they all agreed unanimously and they agreed that Zayd ibn Thabit should do it because he was a young man. He used to write the revelation. There was no doubt over his reliability. And he was one of the people the Prophet recommended and one of the people who memorized the Quran. But also he was young. It's not easy to go around left, right, collecting papers and putting them in order. You know, like when if any of you studied at university level and then you try and do that level of study again when you are like 35, 40, you struggle, right? You're like, oh man, how did I used to stay up these late nights and, you know, like do all of this writing and whatever. So they said, Zaid, look, you are the, young, the youngest or among the youngest of the people the Prophet ﷺ recommended to gather the Qur'an or to recite the Qur'an, you memorize the whole thing beginning to end. Therefore, you are the right person to bring this together. Did they then rely upon what Zayd said? 
and say whatever Zayd said, yani, let now the Quran is Ahad. And it's only narrated by Zayd ibn Thabit. Everyone else was lost. No. They then showed the Quran to the Akabir, to the major scholars among the companions. And they received a second consensus. That is the consensus of all of the reciters that what Zayd gathered was correct and that there were no mistakes in it. Someone may say, oh, the printing, writing. We say simply this, and I'm not going to take too much longer. We say this. Zayd ibn Thabit. Let me put it to you another way. I have a printed copy of the Quran to my, to my right here. What would happen if there was an error in the printing press and a word was put in the wrong place or a page was put in the wrong place? Who would correct that? Every one of these copies of the Mus'haf, every print run, is given to a committee of who? Hufaz. A committee of people who've memorized the Quran. They go over what is written and they highlight any potential errors. The same thing was done in the time of Akbar. It's not the fact that the printed, people keep thinking that writing is really reliable and people's memory is really not. But in their time, writing was less reliable than memory. And it was only written and preserved, gathered together in order to stop the, the problem that happened from people dying. Otherwise, there was no need to gather the Qur'an because the memorization of these people was better than their writing. When you write down what I say, you, you don't write down every word. You make a mistake, you put one word here, one word there. And you guys have been brought up writing from a young age. What about if you've not written except just a tiny bit? It's difficult. Therefore, it makes sense for the for the itimad for the for the emphasis and the and the the uh, the pressure and the, the weight of the revelation to be carried by memory makes more sense than for it to be carried by writing in the beginning. Then later on, and it was carried by by writing, and of course. Uh, Zayd was one of the primary scribes himself. What does that mean? Much of the Qur'an would have already been with Zayd because he wrote most of it, him, he wrote most of it during the lifetime of the Prophet Abu Bakr, in some narrations, is narrated as having said to Zayd to sit in the masjid and only to accept if two people came with the Quran. And he don't accept if one person, if one person comes. Only accept if two people come, any two witnesses. The problem with that is the final ayat in Surah At-Tawbah, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ Zayd says, I collected the Qur'an until I found the last two ayat of Surah At-Tawbah with Khuzayma ibn Thabit al-Ansari and nobody else. Does that mean that only Khuzayma memorized those ayat? No, that's not the meaning. Zayd had memorized them, Abu Bakr had memorized them, Umar had memorized them, but only, Zayd, only Khuzayma brought them on a piece of paper. Everybody else brought them from memory. 
So that also is another confusion. They say, okay, but what are you going to do with the last two ayahs of Surah Al-Tawbah? Because this proves that it was not, you didn't have any witness, only one person knew them. That's not what the hadith says. The hadith said only one person brought them on a piece of paper. As for the people who knew them, hundreds of the companions knew the ayat. These are very famous ayat. Many of you will have heard them. لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِمَا عَنِدْتُمْ حَرِيسٌ عَلَيْكُمْ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَعُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ These ayat are more famous. Everyone has memorized. Many, many, many of the companions would have memorized them about the Prophet So there was no issue with that. The issue was that only Khuzayma had them written down. Everybody else had memorized them by their, by their memory. Likewise, there is a narration that Zayd said, I could not find a verse that I used to hear from the Prophet ﷺ. Meaning Zayd had memorized it, but nobody brought it to him. Until I found it with a person from the Ansar, from the believers of those who have been truthful in what they, in the covenant they made with Allah. And then Zayd said, I put it in its proper place. Now what does that tell you? Does that tell you that Zayd took this from the Ansari without checking? No, Zayd knew it was from the Quran. But Zayd said, I was waiting, nobody brought it to me. Until finally I found it among a man from the Ansar that he had, he had written it down. So yes, there were limit. not always they could bring two copies of what was written down, but they could always bring many tens of people who could witness that it was correct. Uh, we only have five more minutes before we have to stop, but we must talk very briefly about Uthman. And you can read more about that. What it is important to say is that Abu Bakr did not try to standardize the Mus'haf. Abu Bakr didn't intend to make an official copy of the Mus'haf. He simply wanted to make sure that nobody died and the Qur'an died with them. The ayah of the Qur'an was no longer, and he was no longer transmitted. That was the aim of Abu Bakr. It was not to make a standard copy, it was not that he should have, you know, this is the only copy and you should all take from this copy. The aim of Abu Bakr was simply, very, very simple, the aim of Abu Bakr, is to make sure that if somebody dies, the Qur'an is not forgotten. And we have a copy of the Qur'an. Later on, more and more people are coming into Islam and... Uh, Many, many, many people are coming who are foreign to the Arabic language. And this presents a new challenge, especially after the time of Umar towards the time of Uthman. People were coming into Islam who were very far away from the companions, the original Arabic, the recitation of the Quran. And of course, you know how it is when you start transmitting by wording and you know, like things go and... And there starts to be differing over the Qur'an. And so it came that the Muslims of Syria were reciting Qur'an differently from the Muslims of Iraq. And they were arguing with one another. And so Hudayfa, radiallahu anh, came to Uthman and he said, O commander of the faithful, 
Save this ummah before it disagrees about his book like the Jews and the Christians did before it. Okay, and he don't let the people argue with oneself. And he encouraged him to make an official copy of the Quran with which people could take their own copy and have a reliable copy that they knew had been approved by the Sahaba. Because the issue now is you have people in Azerbaijan. You have one Sahabi, two Sahaba there, three Sahaba, many of which may not have memorized the whole Quran. So how, are you, how am I supposed to now, when you have millions of you know, people, how am I supposed to now get my Quran checked by Ubay ibn Ka'b, or by Mu'adh ibn Jabal, or by whoever is left alive, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, or Abdullah ibn Abbas, or Aisha, or Hafsa. How am I now going to get my Quran checked by those people? So Uthman came up with a very, very sensible idea, which again had consensus from the companions. And that idea was very simply to produce a standard copy of the Quran, which was checked by the Sahaba and agreed upon as being valid. And then sending official copies, one to the major masjid in each city. So if you wanted a copy of the Quran, you only had to take your scribe, bring him to the main masjid of your city, open the copy that was sent by Uthman, and copy it down, and this made it easy for the Muslims. Ali ibn Abi Talib said, O people, do not say evil of Uthman, but only say good about him. Concerning the burning of the Masahif, I swear by Allah, he only did this after he called on all of us. He said, what should I do concerning the recitations in Azerbaijan? For it has reached me that each party is claiming their recitation is better, and this might lead to disbelief. We said to him, what do you suggest we do? He said, I think we should consolidate the Muslims on one Mus'haf. So there are not any disagreements. We said, verily, this idea of yours is an excellent idea. The companions unanimously agreed upon the action of Uthman, which was to produce a standard copy. That did not take out of the Mus'haf things that were in the Mus'haf before. That did not remove words and sentences and so on. It simply meant that when you've got, you know, I've got a copy that says this, you've got a copy that reads like that, Man says, look, the companions who know the most about the Mus'haf, they all agree that this is the copy. And what we are going to do is send this copy to one copy to each major area. And then you go to the masjid, you take your copy and you can receive a valid copy of the Mus'haf. Imagine if that wasn't in place today. Imagine if this Mus'haf, many of us have not memorized, if this Mus'haf, you have to you know, each makes his own copy and you give your copy to his friend and he gives his copy to his friend and he gives his copy to his friend and he gives his copy. Then it becomes, okay, Muhammad, Tim's copy is the best. No, 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 no. I took my copy from so-and-so. His copy is better than his. Wouldn't it be better if you had one copy that you could go back to and say, this is the best of all of them? Of course. And there is no issue with this because there was consensus on the idea. I'm just going to read you very quickly. Uh... The differences, first of all, the differences between Abu Bakr and Uthman. First of all, the reason was different because Abu Bakr wanted to stop the Quran being lost and Uthman wanted to stop people reciting the Quran in the wrong way. 
by gathering all of the valid recitations in one place, especially for people who did not know Arabic. Big challenge, it's a new thing. Before you have everybody is perfect in Arabic, now you have people who Arabic is not even their first language. Of course you want to give them a copy of the Quran that has not been, had any mistakes introduced into it. Uh, Abu Bakr relied upon Zayd ibn Thabit. As for Uthman, he used Zayd and all of the other major companions to do so. And he did not rely upon Zayd alone. Abu Bakr only had one Mus'haf, which was then left with Hafsa radiallahu anha, and uh, Uthman had several. Abu Bakr didn't have a problem with inauthentic narrations. Therefore, he, only had, he did not have to burn anything. And burning the copy of the Qur'an is what you do when you, don't, when you want to. Burning the Qur'an is not a disgrace. Burning the Qur'an is what you do when you want to get rid of it to stop throwing it in the bin. And if you throw the Qur'an in the bin, this is disgraceful. If you burn the Qur'an to ashes, this is valid. You can burn it or bury it or throw it in the sea. So burning the Qur'an made sense to do. Abu Bakr didn't mean to burn the Qur'an because he didn't have a problem. Everyone was reciting the Qur'an correctly. Uthman had a problem that there were copies of the Qur'an that were wrong. Because they had been copied by people who were not Arabs, from people who were not Arabs, from people who came from this, you know, and he heard this and he heard that. So Uthman commanded the wrong copies to be burnt. They were not the copies that contained that Ali ibn Abi Talib is the imam of the Muslims and so on and so forth. Ali himself said this. And Ali radiallahu anhu himself said, that I have a copy, his copy of the Mus'haf, and he had a copy of some ahadith. And he told that there is nothing in here that you don't know about. And he said words to that effect. There is nothing in this sahifah, in this scroll, that you don't know about. And don't fear that there is something in here, like a secret rule or a secret imama. There is nothing in what I have that is any different to what you have. Abu Bakr still had the Qur'an on date palm leaves and wood and so on, whereas Uthman, uh, and it was written in different styles and so on, whereas Uthman wrote it in the style of Quraysh. And Uthman wrote it in the standard, any style, as you know, you can see copies of the Qur'an with different styles of writing and so on. So Uthman chose for it to be written in the writing style of Quraysh as a standard. And many people say that Abu Bakr's Mus'haf may not have had the surahs in the correct order, although the ayat were in the correct order. Whereas Uthman made particular attention that the surah should be in the order that they were uh, revealed. Furthermore, it is also true that Uthman's Mus'haf gathered together all of the qira'at, as we said. It is not true that Abu Bakr has gathered all of the qira'at and Uthman burnt the qira'at. That's not true. Uthman's mushaf accommodated all of the qira'at except those which are shadha, those which were only recited by one companion in their personal copy of the mushaf. And these have still been preserved for us today. We have not lost them, but they are not a part of the official Qur'an which is why we said the best definition of the Qur'an is to say about the mutawatir, it is that which is in, in agreement with the mushaf of Uthman and narrated authentically. Because this is the official copy of the Qur'an. As for personal copies, people added and took away. Now that's all we have time for, definitely we went over our list. 
but you can keep on going through those chapters inshallah ta'ala i wish that we had time to keep on going it's in this only book i'm covering is 400 pages but we don't have so much time and we won't be able to take questions officially today so what we will do inshallah with the questions is we will take them on the way out because we promised the imam that we will have the masjid uh, free by quarter past so inshallah that's enough for you guys please go ahead and read more until you get completely aware of all of these issues and i seriously even in the exam i'm going to still require you to go through the headings and write notes from the book inshallah so don't rely only upon what we've said in class go through the small headings i've made here up to heading whatever it is i'm not sure maybe 15 or something let's have a look no not so much 10 or 12 I, we did most of them and and go through them inshallah ta'ala So today we start a somewhat new topic. It's not entirely new because it's within the it's within the same subject, but a new text um, within the subject of Ulum al Quran. And it is a text regarding a very specific part of Ulum al Quran, the sciences of the Quran. And that is relating to the science of tafsir, but even more specifically relating to something we call usul at tafsir. Usul at tafsir. Usul at tafsir. is a part of or one of the many sub-sciences of Ulum al-Qur'an. And it's made up of two words, Usul and Tafsir. So Usul as we mentioned, I think before, but we'll just repeat it again, is the plural of asl, meaning the fundamental basis, the, the, uh, the basic principles, the qawaid, the rules, which are the foundation of tafsir. So are we going to do in the next two weeks the tafsir of any of the ayat? Not really, except by example. Except for, you know, to use as an example. We're not going to do the tafsir of any ayat in the next two weeks. However, what we're going to study are the principles and the rules and the system which provides a framework and a foundation through which you can understand how to interpret the Qur'an. Because you can't just open the Qur'an and interpret it as you like. You can't just open the Qur'an and, you know, like just understand whatever meaning you understand and just take it the way that you want. 
There is a framework, there are rules, there are pieces of information which are needed. And fundamental principles which are required to be able to make or to be able to properly understand the tafsir of the Qur'an. And these principles that we're going to talk about are in general very, very, very simple. They are not as complicated, for example, as the principles which underlie fiqh, usul al-fiqh. The principles which form the foundation of fiqh are quite complicated. But the principles which, found, which, which, underlie, the principle, which underlie the science of tafsir, in the way we're going to study them, they can be complicated later on, but in the way we're going to study them, are actually quite accessible and relatively easy to understand because we're not going to study them in a very advanced level. You can study them at an advanced level, in which case it's, uh, you know, there have been doctorate theses written on them. However, we're going to study them at quite a basic level because our aim is not to author a book of tafsir. Our aim is to be able to understand a book of tafsir and to get the most out of it by understanding what set of rules and what framework was this tafsir based upon. And once we understand the rules and the foundation by which tafsir is made, tafsir becomes much easier to us. And if any of you have ever read the tafsir of Ibn Kathir, and I don't mean the summarized version, I mean the, like the, the, uh, the one that comes in many volumes, even the summarized version. You might have found yourself, like I did, to find that book of tafsir actually quite inaccessible, quite difficult. And in our third subject, we're going to, uh, we're going to delve into Ibn Kathir. But one of, the, uh, one of the problems that you have with Ibn Kathir is the book is actually quite hard in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and personally, I believe it was not the best decision to make to translate this book before other books of uh, tafsir. And it probably confused a lot of people because the book is not an easy book to understand. When you have completed this next two weeks, inshallah, it will be ta'ala make accessing books like Ibn Kathir much, much easier. Because as you will note when you read Ibn Kathir, one of the hardest things about the tafsir, and you could say this about many books of tafsir, is that it contains many, many, many different opinions. So you start reading and you end up quite confused by the end of it because you have read perhaps five different opinions regarding the ayah and all of them seem to come from reliable sources from the Sahaba, from the Tabi'een, 
and so it becomes difficult to access the book. The summary version is better because the, the summary version naturally removes some of that. But still, the summarized version contains, as almost all of the advanced books of tafsir contain, many, many different opinions and many different ways of looking at the ayah. So one of the main aims that we have is to understand why that happens and to understand whether or not that is actually a problem. Because as the author of this book that we're going to study today, Shaykh al-Islam Taymiyyah says, in the vast majority of instances of tafsir of the early generations, there is no contradiction whatsoever in the different opinions. There might be 10 opinions, but all of them are completely in line with one another. And he will explain why. And this will help you to be able to access and to be able to judge the different opinions you hear in tafsir and to judge whether or not those opinions are worthy of consideration or not and whether you have to choose one of them or whether all of them can be correct and so on so these are some of the things that we want to achieve uh, in this book study of this book which is known as it's called al-muqaddimah it's called the introduction to the foundations or the fundamentals of tafsir. In English, it is translated as, let me get you in, Introduction to the Principles of Tafsir. Introduction to the Principles of Tafsir. And as always, inshallah, we'll post the link for you guys, um, the PDF link for you guys to study. So this is an introduction to the principles of tafsir. The word introduction, what does that tell you? It tells you that this book is at a beginner's level. This book is not really hard to access. Although there is something that makes it harder, and as students you should be aware of that. And that is that it is a relatively classical book. In the sense that it's not written in modern times. It was not written like in the last you know, 100, 200, whatever, 300, 400, 500, no, before that. So it's not written in the very earliest days of Islam, but no doubt it was written uh, it's not what we would term to be a modern book. And that makes it a little more difficult to understand. Because generally when you read a modern day book that was written by an author in the last 20 years, 30 years, you know, 50 years, 80 years, they're generally very easy to understand because the author talks in a way that you are quite familiar with. And using terminology usually that you're quite familiar with and usually the author 
knows the level of knowledge that exists among the Muslims at the time the book was written and, and caters for that. So the book has some difficulty in it, which is not that the book is, the book is still a beginner's book, but it has some difficulty in it because the standard of a beginner's book at the time of Ibn Taymiyyah is not the same as the standard of a beginner's book today. And just a word about accessing uh, the books of Ibn Taymiyyah uh, I think one of the most uh, important things or two of the most important things perhaps about the books of Ibn Taymiyyah Number one, he is extremely, extremely cautious, and you could even say picky, about the words that he uses. So you have to read them pretty carefully, and sometimes you have to read them twice or three times, and really pay attention. Because Sheikh is very well known for being extremely, extremely cautious and careful and deliberate about choosing particular words. And the second thing you need to be aware <laughs> the second thing that you need to be aware of is that the Sheikh was extremely, extremely, I don't know whether to use the word intelligent or intellectual or both, but uh, very, it, the books are very intellectual books. They contain a lot of uh, high-level terminology, high-level language, complex uh, terms. This one less so because it's a beginner's book, but still, When you see, you know, when you read, uh, and particularly the fact that Ibn Taymiyyah gathers, you know, he really did gather together almost every science of Islam in one person. So he was an expert in hadith and tafsir and fiqh and aqidah and, you know, in every single one of those things, the Sheikh would have been considered to be a leading expert of his time. Uh, and likewise, his ability to, to be able to address, for example, philosophers and people of philosophy in their language, you know, it could easily be argued that he understood philosophy better than the philosophers did genuinely when you read the level that he speaks when he speaks about things like philosophy he speaks about it with more understanding than the philosophers speak about it and he shows a depth of knowledge about it that they themselves don't show so he is very intellectual and that also makes it a little bit you means you have to sometimes uh, go quite slowly through his books because he can easily uh, 
divert off onto a topic that in of itself a whole book could be written on. So he's going to touch upon things here which are from Mustalah uh, al-Hadith, the science of Hadith, and things that are maybe from Usul al-Fiqh, and things that are from Aqidah he touches upon. And that's because the Shaykh had a vast amount of knowledge in many different sciences, unlike today generally, generally, not always, but generally today, you tend to see most people are known for one science. They may have knowledge of many, but they're known for one. And this, the Shaykh is faqih. He's a scholar of fiqh. And he, he knows about hadith, he knows about aqidah, but he's primarily, you know, he's known for his, his fiqh. Sometimes you get a scholar that's known for two things. He's known for his fiqh and his aqidah. But rarely do you get someone like Ibn Taymiyyah, who in every one of those fields would be considered to be a leading pioneer expert of his time. And so when he diverts off on a topic about Mustalah al-Hadith or a topic about Aqeedah or whatever, there's a lot of knowledge comes out of that. There's a lot of depth. And the reason I'm telling you about that is uh, so that you go through the book slowly and carefully. And to assist you in this, I've chosen for us to use as our text the original text of the book, in addition to the explanation of Sheikh Ibn Taymin, Rahimullah Ta'ala. Sheikh Ibn Taymin is, of course, one of the relatively uh, the scholars of our, you know, our modern times, passed away, Rahimullah Ta'ala, but he was one of the scholars of, of our, our times, our, these, you know, the generations of the people that are here today. So the Sheikh will. The purpose of the, the explanation of Sheikh Ibn Taymin is to help us with these two issues. Number one, the issue of the fact that the book was not written in the last hundred years and so it may be a little bit inaccessible to us at times. And number two, to assist us with the depth of knowledge that Ibn Taymiyyah writes with and to help us to just be able to decipher that and be able to like take benefit from it without, you know, without getting ourselves too confused. Otherwise, the book is uh, most definitely among uh, the easier books uh, that Ibn Taymiyyah authored, and it's definitely intended to be a, an introduction and a beginner's text. And as we said, the aim from this is not for you to interpret the Qur'an yourself, but to give you the tools to properly understand the interpretation of the Qur'an that has been done by the, the various scholars of tafsir, the mufassirin. So that being said, we will begin inshallah ta'ala. It's not a very long book. The, uh, the text along with the explanation runs to about 180 uh, A5 pages, which is not a lot. Because once you take the explanation of Sheikh Taymin out, you, you know, you probably have 30 pages or something like that. It's, it's not, not a massive amount of, uh, it's not a massive amount of text. So the Sheikh begins with an introduction. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, the name of Allah, the 
most merciful, the bestower of mercy. And the Sheikh begins his uh, statement with Khutbah al Hajjah. He says, Alhamdulillah, Nasta'inuhu wa nasta'gfiru wa na'udhu billahi min shuroori anfusina wa min sayyati a'malina. May yahtihillahu fala mudillalah wa may yudlil fala hadiyalah. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wahtahu la sharika lah. Wa ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluh. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then he says, Amma ba'd. This is Khutbatul Hajjah. And it is the, uh, the, the text that is often said by a speaker or by an author before they begin to discuss their need. Whether that need is a religious need or a worldly need or marriage or whatever. And for that reason it is called Khutbatul Hajjah. The speech or the sermon of need because you use it you use it as an introduction before you get onto the topic that you need to talk about so before getting onto the topic that you need to talk about you begin with khutbatul hajjah and this is the from the the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam i'm not going to explain khutbatul hajjah it could be explained in another sitting uh, it really would take a full lesson to explain it in its full detail. Uh, however, you are welcome to read the uh, you're welcome to read the uh, the brief notes that Sheikh Muthaymin uh, added to it, or to read other explanations because there are other English explanations of Khutbat al-Hajjah that you could find. Some are some are short and some are long. So the author he says. I have been asked by a number of brothers to author an introduction to the tafsir of the Quran comprising of the Sheikh said qawaid kulliyah comprehensive principles which will assist a person to understand its meanings as well as differentiating between the truth and all kinds of falsehood and the criteria to be used in this. I'm quoting from the English. The Arabic is a little bit different. Sometimes the translator takes uh, or the translator takes it upon themselves to add some explanatory uh, explanatory words or phrases or something like that but generally we we'll read from the english so the first point we have to understand here is the reason behind the sheikh the author writing the book and the reason behind the author writing the book is that he was asked by some of the brothers he was asked by some brothers to write a basic text an introduction a muqaddimah a basic text and 
this muqaddimah should contain qawaid kulliyah comprehensive principles qawaid kulliyah they can be applied to the whole of the quran they, they are principles that will help you in every aspect of the quran they help you to understand the quran and its tafsir They help you to understand the Qur'an and its tafsir. And understanding the Qur'an is one of the fundamental principles for which the Qur'an was revealed. We said the Qur'an was revealed to recite and the Qur'an was revealed to understand. And finally and most importantly, the Qur'an was revealed to act upon. And we mentioned this in the previous week's uh, classes. So understanding the Qur'an is a fundamental part of our worship of Allah as it relates to the Qur'an. And understanding the Qur'an is more difficult, as you would imagine, than reciting the Qur'an. And likewise, acting upon the Qur'an is also more difficult than understanding the Qur'an. So we can say the easiest act of worship that relates to the Qur'an is reciting. And the middle one is understanding. And the hardest one is acting upon it. I'm not sure that it has to be in that order every time. This is the order Sheikh Nusaymin gave. But I'm not sure it has to be in, the order, in that order every time because sometimes it may, there may be elements that are relatively easy to, to act upon. But you could also argue that those elements that are easy to act upon were also easy to understand. So in general, in each point that is made by the Qur'an, the easiest thing you can do is to recite then to understand and then finally the, the hardest one is to is to put it into practice as for the statement of the sheikh which will help you and the statement of the author which will help you to understand its meanings and its tafsir what is the difference between Understanding the Qur'an and understanding its tafsir. Or is there a difference between? Because the, sheikh, the author, he said, تُعِينُ عَلَى فَهْمِ الْقُرْآنِ وَمَعْرِفَةِ تَفْسِيرِهِ And we said, he's very precise with what he said. So is there a difference between understanding the Qur'an and knowing its tafsir? Sheikh Ibn Thimeen said, yes, there is a difference. He said the tafsir of the Qur'an is more than just understanding the basic meaning. And tafsir of the Qur'an is more than just understanding the basic meaning. Because tafsir 
includes, for example, discussing the rulings and the wisdom and so on and so forth, which is taken from the Quran, whereas understanding the meanings is just that you understand what the words say, you understand what the words say, and you understand, you know, like what is being conveyed to you, like as a, as a in a basic sense. But tafsir is quite a bit more than just knowing what each word means. And I give you an excellent example which will illustrate that. You take a copy of Sahih International, okay, like the translation of the Quran. I'm not going to say Muhsin Khan because Muhsin Khan might confuse you with this point I'm going to make. You take a copy of Sahih International. Then take a copy of, let's say, a summary of Ibn Kathir. Do you find a difference between the two? The translation of the Quran is to do with Fahmul Ma'ani, understanding the meaning. You just understand the meaning and convey the meaning in English. The tafsir of the Quran covers a lot more than just telling you that this word means this and this word means this and this word means this. Or there is another way of looking at this, a totally different way. The Sheikh suggests. is that understanding the Qur'an means understanding what is intended. And the tafsir of the Qur'an is just understanding what is, and understanding what is apparent. That's a different way of looking at it. The tafsir is understanding what is to be taken from the, you know, what you take from the words when you read, when you, you know, what, the, what the words, the basic kind of breakdown of the words and what is apparent from them. And the meanings are to do with what is intended, not to do with the words themselves. For example, it could be said that the meanings are, are related to rulings. This is halal, this is haram. The word halal or haram may not be mentioned in the ayah at all. So the tafsir might, it might be said, that tafsir deals with, for example, the words themselves that are used. The, the words themselves that are used. And understanding deals with the actual what you what you get out of it at the end the fruit that you get out of it that you're gonna you know what is actually what is this ayah actually telling you so when you explain the meaning of the ayah you may not refer to the words in the ayah themselves and when you do tafsir you will refer to the words in the ayah themselves that is another way of looking at it so in this way we would say that when you make tafsir of an ayah, for example, you might begin by giving the linguistic and shara'i definition of each word. And when you convey the meaning to somebody, you say, this ayah means it is forbidden for you to do this. This ayah means that you should try to do this. This ayah means that it is disliked to do this. 
This ayah means that we should love the Prophet وسلم, more than ourselves, even though the ayah doesn't say that. In a word-for-word sense, the ayah doesn't say it. So that's another way of looking at it. That's another way of looking at it. So ultimately, there could be differences, and there are differences between understanding and between tafsir. And two options are, one way of looking at it is to say that the tafsir includes more than just the meaning. Any tafsir is like more comprehensive. Or you could look at tafsir in a different way and say that tafsir is where you break down what the words, what the words actually are and what they mean and what they, what they say. And the meaning is where you give somebody the actual intention behind the ayah. And ultimately neither. Both of those two can be true. It's more down to whether you look at tafsir as a, in a narrow sense or a wide sense. So if I take a book of tafsir, which is Ibn Kathir, for example, this book does not just contain the meaning of each word. It's not just a dictionary. But one of the meanings of tafsir as a, as a word could be just to give a dictionary definition of each word, for example. So it depends how you look at the word tafsir. If you look at the word tafsir in a very general sense, then tafsir is more comprehensive than meaning. And if you look at tafsir in a very narrow sense, then tafsir refers to giving you the, the meanings of all of those words and dealing with what's actually, what's actually in the mushaf itself. And understanding is more about giving you the fruits that we and the benefits that we take out of the ayah, even if those benefits are not mentioned in in words. And both of those are both of those are true. The author goes on to say The books of tafsir contain both good and bad. Obvious falsehood and clear truth. So the Sheikh now is warning you about a problem that exists in many of the books of tafsir. And that is that most books of tafsir, beyond a very summarized book, and even some of the summarized books you can say this for as well, but especially the more lengthy books of tafsir, contain both good and bad. They contain reliable narrations and fabrications. They contain weak hadith and authentic hadith. They contain... Israeliyat, and he narrates from narrations from the children of Israel, and they contain narrations from the Sahaba. So they are generally a mix of good and bad, obvious falsehood and clear truth. And obvious, sometimes some of the things you see in the books of Tafsir are obviously false, and some of them are obviously true.
And then the Sheikh gives you a principle, one of the first principles. I think this is one of the, uh, this is the first real principle that he gives you. Knowledge is either a text which is received from an infallible source or a saying backed by clear proof. As for all else, then it is either false and rejected or doubtful. So he said knowledge is one of two things. Either something received from an ma'asum, yani from something yani infallible, or it is a statement that is backed up by a well-known evidence. So there are two types of beneficial knowledge in tafsir. When you go through a book of tafsir, there are two types of beneficial knowledge and two types of knowledge that don't benefit. Okay? Two types of knowledge that benefit and two types of knowledge that don't benefit. The two types of knowledge which benefit are number one, Knowledge which comes from an infallible source. What does that mean? I.e., it comes from the Prophet ﷺ directly. And that can include the tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an and the tafsir of the Qur'an with the Sunnah. And either it came from the Prophet ﷺ and it's part of the scripture of Islam in which case, this is beneficial knowledge. If Allah described what a word means in the Quran, or the Prophet ﷺ described the tafsir of an ayah in the sunnah, this is the first type of beneficial knowledge. The second type of beneficial knowledge did not come from the Prophet ﷺ. It came from those who came with him and after him, i.e. the companions and those who followed them in good. However, this needs to come with something for it to be beneficial. It has a condition. It can't be considered to be beneficial unless it comes with a delil, an evidence for it. That evidence might be who said it. It might be because you know something from one of the companions is definitely, and it has its weight. But we need to understand that the only two things that are going to benefit us in a book of tafsir is something that the Prophet ﷺ said or something that one of the Sahaba or the, or the Tabi'een or the Imams of Islam said and it has a, and it has a, an evidence for it. Not something that they just said based on, you know, how they felt. And of course, this is very, very rare in the time of the companions, and perhaps it doesn't even exist in the time of the companions. But as you get later on, it becomes more common that people might speak about, you know, how they understand. So if you have something that's not a hadith or not an ayah, then it has to have a delil. 
As for everything else, then it is either false and rejected, or it is doubtful, so its truth and falsehood can't be ascertained. For example, what we are told from many of the Israeliyat, the, the stories of the children of Israel from, from their books. We cannot ascertain the, where we don't have any proof that it is true or any proof that it is false. So we say, Allah knows best. So when you're going through that book of Tafsir, the first thing you want to do is to sort out what you're reading into one of four categories. Is it an Islamic evidence, i.e. is it a statement of the Prophet wasallam? Is it a statement of a scholar which is backed up with evidence? That evidence could be linguistic evidence, it could be uh, you know, a hadith, or it could be analogy, or it could be you know, it could be any type of evidence, but they have an evidence for what they said. Or is it something which is definitely rejected? I mean, you can, when you look at it, you know that it is wrong. Such as the tafsir of إِنَّمَا أَنْتَ مُنْذِرُ In Surah Al-Ra'd إِنَّمَا أَنْتَ مُنْذِرُ وَلِكُلِّ قَوْمٍ هَاد In some of the books of tafsir it says إِنَّمَا أَنْتَ مُنْذِرُ you are only a warner. You're only the one who is warning. And every nation has a guide. In some of the books of Tafsir, it says, you are, or Muhammad وسلم, are only the warner and Ali is the guide. This is clearly false. Not to say that Ali is not a source of uh, guidance, but that singling out this ayah to mean that there, that there are two people who were sent by Allah. One of them is the Prophet ﷺ and the other one is Ali. The Prophet ﷺ is called the Mundir and Ali is called the guide. This is batil, falsehood. Or it's something that you can't tell whether it's falsehood or not. For example, the name of the names of the brothers of Yusuf. We don't know whether their names any were what are said about them, the, 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 the other brothers, the brothers who plotted against Yusuf. But they're, they're listed in the books of Tafsir. This one goes in the category of doubtful because we don't have an evidence for it from Islam. But we have the, you know, the, the stories of the children of Israel, the, the, the names that are mentioned in the Bible, what some of the people who uh, reverted or converted to Islam from Christianity and Judaism said, and you have like some statements, but we don't have anything that we can consider to be either a proof or an evidence, like a, a proof in of itself or an evidence. The author, he continues, the Muslim nation greatly needs to understand the Quran, which is the rope of Allah. The wise reminder and the straight path. The Shaykh is giving you a little bit of tafsir. The Quran is the rope of Allah. 
It is Hablullah. It is Hablullah al-Mateen. It is the firm rope of Allah. And it is Al-Dhikr al-Hakim. It is the wise reminder. And it is the Sirat al-Mustaqim. We're going to come later on. Is that the only meaning of the Sirat al-Mustaqim? We're going to come to this later on because this is part of what the text is going to answer for us. And is it the case that the Sirat al-Mustaqim is the Quran? That's it. But the Shaykh is saying to you, the Quran is Hablullah, it is the rope of Allah. Like in the statement of Allah, in Surah Al Imran. And it is a dhikr hakim. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. talked about that this is what we recite to you from the ayat and a dhikr al-hakim and Shaykh is saying to you that a dhikr al-hakim in the ayah refers to the Quran and it is as-sirat al-mustaqim so the Shaykh is saying to you in Surah Al-Fatiha as-sirat al-mustaqim is the Quran and as we will learn later on that is not an exclusive Tafsir. In other words, it is not the case that the only thing the Sirat al-Mustaqim refers to is the Qur'an. Or the only thing that Hablullah refers to is the Qur'an. The rope of Allah is the Qur'an. Or that the only thing, for example, or Al-Dhikr al-Hakim, Allahu A'lam, is there more than one Tafsir about it? Uh, perhaps there is not more than one Tafsir regarding Al-Dhikr al-Hakim. But regarding the other two, there are many, many, many uh, opinions about what the rope of Allah is and what the straight path is. And generally later on you will learn that all of them are correct. They are not contradictory. They're complementary to one another. The Shaykh continues to say, Evil desires will never corrupt it. Wicked tongues will never distort it. Continuously studying it will never cause it to fade and its miracles will never cease. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised that he will preserve the Qur'an. Allah said, We sent down the remembrance and we will preserve it. We will keep it safe. So no matter how evil the desire of the people who wish to extinguish the light of Allah is, they will never be able to corrupt the Qur'an. No matter how much their tongues try to distort the Quran. From them are a group of people who they distort it with their tongues so that you think that it is from the book and it's not from the book. I.e. the Torah. And they say this is from Allah, but it's not from Allah. I from Ahl Kitab. The Quran is not liable to this confusion. 
And it's not possible for the munafiqoon or anyone else to come and to roll their tongue around the ayat until they make you think that something is from the Qur'an when it's not from the Qur'an. And like for this reason when you see the failed attempts of people to copy the style of the Qur'an, met various different people throughout history and Christians and other people tried to make a, a Qur'an like our Qur'an and copy the style. Instantly when you hear it, instantly when you hear it, you know that it's not from the Qur'an. So it's not possible with regard to the Qur'an for anyone to distort it. And likewise, it's not possible for anyone to distort its meanings either. Not just its words, but also its meanings. Because the Qur'an was revealed in a clear Arabic tongue. And the Qur'an is never translated. And by that, it's an important distinction to understand. The meaning of the Qur'an is translated. But the Qur'an itself is only in Arabic. The Qur'an doesn't exist like the Bible. Which Bible? The Hebrew Bible, the Greek Bible, the, you know, the, the, uh, the English Bible. We don't, have a, we don't have an English Qur'an and a French Qur'an and a German Qur'an. We have translations of the meaning. An English translation of the meaning of the Qur'an. And a French translation of the meaning of the Qur'an. And there's nothing wrong with saying a translation of the Qur'an as a, as a summary. But the Qur'an itself, because it's understood that you mean a translation of the meaning. But the Qur'an itself only exists in Arabic. So it can't be distorted. How was the Bible distorted? Many times the Bible was distorted by translation. When they translated it into Greek, they added some things and they took some things out and they changed some things to make them suitable for what they, what they wanted to do. But the Qur'an is not liable to this kind of distortion. Continuously studying it will never cause it to fade. I.e. it doesn't matter how many times you study it, you keep on taking a benefit from it. And that, there is no other book like that. Every other book, you reach a limit to what you can take from it. And you, you know, reach a, 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 a part of boredom. Especially if you were to read it many times, the same thing many times a day. If I were to ask you to read a line of poetry 30 times a day, 35 times a day, you'd get extremely bored of that line of poetry by, you know, within a week, within two weeks, you would get bored of it, no matter how wise it is. And yet you recite Surah Al-Fatiha in every raka'ah of every prayer. And you never ever get bored of it. You never ever think, that, oh, this is boring, I want to read something else. So studying it never causes it to fade. However many times you repeat it, it's like you've never read it before. The Qur'an is repetitive. It, it repeats the same concepts over and over again. And yet you never feel that it's repetitive. You never read it and think, oh, that was mentioned on the page before, I know that already. 
and everything feels to be perfect. It's part of the miraculous nature of the Quran. And uh, the miracles of the Quran, you can read about them in the previous text that we gave you. There's a chapter on the miraculous nature. Al-I'jazu fil Quran, the miraculous nature of the Quran. And I will leave you, instead of giving you too much, I will leave you to read that chapter in the previous text, in the previous book that we did. There is a chapter on the miraculous nature of the Quran. But what you have to understand is that the Quran is miraculous on many levels. Its language is miraculous. And its meanings are miraculous. And the knowledge it contains is miraculous. And you can read more about that in the in the chapter that we referred to. Shaykh Al-Fatheemin, Ta'ala, adds, As for the one who turns away from it, he may never see a single miracle in it. And that's incredibly true. And the one who turns away, he cannot, he doesn't see the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. When you tell them about the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, he just says it's just words, Arabic words. Because when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seals the person's heart, they no longer see what is obvious in front of them. And the clearest example of that is atheism. The existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more obvious than the sun in the sky. And yet the atheist says, I don't see any evidence, convince me. It's like a person who comes and says, I don't see the sun, convince me. The sun is in the sky. You, how can I? How do I go about convincing you the sun is in the sky? And if you can't see it, it you can't feel it. I mean, it's there in front of you. There's blue sky. The sun is shining bright. The heat is on your face. And you tell me you can't see the sun. This is the example of the atheist. In fact, the atheist is, is even worse when he says that I can't see the evidence for the existence of Allah. Because the evidence for the existence of Allah is clearer to you than the sun. And likewise, the one who has turned away from the Qur'an can no longer appreciate the miracles that are found within it. They read it and say, okay, it's, it's talking about something. Might be right, might be wrong. They can't, they just don't, they don't see the miracle within the Qur'an anymore. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sealed their heart. Like the atheist who says, I don't see any proof that Allah exists. The Quran is so miraculous, and it's miraculous in so many ways. You know, the miracle of not being, it being, being uh, unable to, anyone being unable to reproduce it. Still until now, you know, like, and, and when you talk to the non-Muslims, they, they sort of give you like a, yeah, you know, we just haven't got around to it yet. But for 1400 years, they have utterly, utterly failed to even bring a single chapter. Smallest chapter is just three ayat. The likes of Inna a'tainaka al kawthar, fasalli li rabbika wanhar. Inna shani aka huwa al abtar. In 1400 years, they couldn't bring something any with that amount of words in it. It's tiny. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny few words. And the funny thing is that sometimes they copy the words. And they actually, and the only way that they've ever found to kind of like confuse people is that they actually take the words of the Quran, but they 
change them. So for example, they still keep inna a'tainak. And they say inna a'tainak. And they make a new word instead of al-kawthar. And then they, you know, they, instead of, uh, they, they keep uh, fasalli, or they take fasalli li rabbik, or they take that out and they say fasalli something. And, then, and when you listen to it, 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 it doesn't have, you can see it doesn't have any of the meaning of the Qur'an, any of the power, any of the beauty, any of the linguistics, any of the grammatic eloquence, nothing at all. And so the Qur'an is obviously miraculous. And yet how many non-Muslims fail to see the miracle in the Qur'an and how many people who've turned away from the Qur'an fail to see the miracle within the Qur'an. The author continued, the scholars will never be able to reach its depths. Whoever utters it has spoken the truth. Whoever acts according to it will be rewarded. Whoever rules by it has been just. Whoever calls to it has been guided to the straight path. And who arrogantly leaves it will be destroyed. And whoever seeks guidance elsewhere will be misguided. It's fairly self-explanatory, those parts. The scholars can never reach its depth. And you never, ever, ever say, this is all I, that can be said about the tafsir of this ayat. I mean, people continue and continue and continue and you, you don't reach the bottom. You keep going back. And it may not be the word, but it may be the link between the ayah and the ayah before. Or a different aspect. Or the ayah as it relates to something else. Or an analogy or an evidence for something. You don't ever reach the depth. You never, ever reach the bottom and say, that's it. I have nothing left to learn from the Qur'an. And that is why you never ever finish learning the Qur'an. Nobody ever. You never finish learning the Qur'an ever. You may finish a, a phase of learning the Qur'an. Like I have read the translation of Muhsin Khan. That's a phase. I have read Tafsir ibn Kathir. That's a phase. I have read Tafsir al-Tabari. That's a phase. But you never ever finish, you can't possibly finish in studying and understanding the Qur'an. Whoever acts according to it will be rewarded and whoever rules by it has been just. Either individually or generally, whoever rules by it in individual cases, like when somebody comes for a, a judgment, or generally whoever <coughs> affirms what the Qur'an affirms and and uh, approves of the rulings that the Qur'an gives and applies those rulings in their life has been just. Whoever calls people to it and to what it contains has been guided to the straight path. Somebody could turn around and say, okay, what about the people who reject the sunnah? Have they been guided to the straight path? We say they have not called to what the Qur'an calls to because the Qur'an calls to following the sunnah in tens and tens of ayat. As we mentioned before a few times. As an example, whatever the messenger gives you, take it. Whatever he forbids you from, abstain from it. So if you're going to call to the Quran, you have to call to following the Sunnah because that's what the Quran calls to. Or you who believe. Obey Allah and obey His Messenger and those who are in authority over you. That's what the Qur'an calls to. So if you don't call to that, you're not calling to the Qur'an. 
And whoever arrogantly leaves it will be destroyed, and whoever seeks guidance elsewhere will be misguided. Regarding destruction, it's not necessary, as the Shaykh ibn Taymin said, it's not necessary, rahimahullah, that this destruction should occur in this world. It may occur in this world and the hereafter, or it may occur in the hereafter alone. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the author continues the author continues quoting an ayah فَإِمَّا يَأْتِيَنَّكُمْ مِنِّي هُدَى فَمَنِ اتَّبَعَ هُدَايَ فَلَا يَضِلُّ وَلَا يَشْقَى وَمَنْ أَعْرَضَ عَنْ ذِكْرِي فَإِنَّ لَهُ مَعِيشَةً ضَنْكَ وَنَحْشُرُهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ أَعْمَى قَالَ رَبِّي لِمَا حَشَرْتَنِي أَعْمَى وَقَدْ كُنْتُ بَصِيرًا Surah Taha 123-126 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said the translation of which is and if there should come to you guidance from me then whoever follows my guidance will neither go astray nor suffer, i.e. will neither go astray in this world nor suffer in the hereafter. And whoever turns away from my remembrance, he will have a depressed life. And we will gather him on the day of resurrection blind. The depressed life, the scholars, some of them said in the grave and some of them said in the worldly life and the grave. And we will gather him on the day of resurrection blind. He will say, my Lord, why have you raised me blind when I used to be sighted? Allah will say, in this way our signs came to you and you forgot them, so today you will be forgotten. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَمَن يُرِدِ اللَّهُ أَن يَهْدِيَهُ يَشْرَحْ صَدَرَهُ لِلْإِسْلَامِ وَمَن يُرِدَ أَن يُضِلَّهُ يَجْعَلْ صَدَرَهُ طَيِّقًا حَرَجًا كَأَنَّمَا يَصَعَّدُ فِي السَّمَاءِ Whoever Allah wants to guide, he opens up his chest and he opens up his heart to accept Islam. And whoever he wants to misguide, he makes his chest tight and constricted as though he were being propelled through the sky. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, the author is still quoting the ayat, مَنْ عَمِلَ صَالِحًا مِنْ ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْثَى وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ فَلَنُحْيَنَّهُ حَيَاةً طَيِّبًا Whoever does good, whether male or female, while he is a believer, we will cause him to live a good life. 